welcome back to another episode of Valar Reread Us for the World of Ice and Fire, where we use smaller topics to vault ourselves into larger discussions about world building, about the certain places that certain topics fall within the story, and what might yet happen, as in what role they might play in the rest of the story or the new stories. That's something we get to talk about occasionally now as well. Given the grand expansion of content on television, we now can have optimism for certain topics, certain subtopics appearing on future projects on television. So anything is potentially on the table. We're still in the wild west of what could be a Game of Thrones program. The wild western. The wild western. How did I not say that was a real fail? What kind of a punster misses an opportunity like that? Luckily, Ashea has my back. So we've got multiple punsters here to make sure they don't slip through the cracks. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It's funny. Yesterday was Ashea's birthday. So join me in wishing Ashea a happy birthday. We had fun. We played a game called Demio. That's really fun. Dungeon crawling video game. Yeah, it's a virtual reality game that I've been into for a while, for a while. And Aziz has not played it with me yet. And he decided to give it a shot for my birthday. And man, we were like playing to like three, four in the morning, defeating this dungeon. And we thought we like we got to the third level and we thought we had it like we had it in the bag and we died. Yeah, we died. We, we, we lost. We, got we, we lost miserably, at least, yeah. as, as it had turned out. But we like we really tried. And so I'm really excited to play more with him. Oh. Yeah. Did you make any friends along the way? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think he's already my friend. I think. I'm not sure, but I think so. <laughs> pretty sure, pretty sure. <laughs> so, Sean, are you drinking something in celebration of Ash's birthday? Do you have a birthday beverage or a celebratory drink of some kind? Whoa, that's a little different in color. It's like a pink, like a so a paler purple. It's the protein naked drink, the berry naked drink with the black cherry bang and good old Mountain Dew. Nothing right too on. special today. A totally normal drink. Totally normal. Yeah, that's that's pretty average for you anyway. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, Ashe and I were at San Diego Comic-Con. We mentioned that last week. And we actually got to go into Hall H. And that was really fun. We got to sit really close and watch that whole big panel and hear George and Ryan and all the actors talk. And Jason Concepcion was the panel of the moderator. And we got to watch that new trailer that's now out on YouTube. So that was a lot of fun. But something that we've been trying to work on for a little while we're going to be able to interview Ryan Condal, the showrunner of House of the Dragon. That's pretty pretty sweet. And we're going to do that on August 29th. 
And if you all have questions you want us to ask him, we don't. We only have a limited time with him, so the be- we were only able to ask the best questions. But anyone who asks the question that we ask, we'll shout your name out. So Ryan will get to hear it, and all the other fellow Westorians will get to hear it as well. And be That's aware. Cool. Ask him what his quest is. <laughs> <laughs> and be aware that that'll be after we've seen the first two episodes of yeah. the season when thinking of a question. Yeah. So August 29th, that exactly. That's that's the day after episode two of House of the Dragon. All right. So can I point out, I haven't even finished it, but I started to listen to a Game of Owns interview. Oh, heck yeah. George Martin. It is so good. It is, isn't Anyone it? Anyone out there who hasn't listened to it yet, it is really good. Totally, totally. Absolutely great call there, Sean. Another shout out for Game of Owens for doing such a fantastic job interviewing George. If you haven't listened to it, do it's not short, but that's great. Yeah, <laughs> George, that's they got want. George to talk. And I mean, yeah. it's very little of they just get him going and he goes. And that is a great, great episode of a podcast. I'm probably gonna bring it up again when I listen to the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to our friend Nina. She is a valuable contributor to History of Westeros podcast on a very regular basis. Check out her blog at goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L in Alley because that's good Queen Alison. And her latest blog post is pretty relevant to today's topic. There's a quote that from Grazdan Moeraz, one of the nasty slavers of Slavers Bay, who, who threatens to enslave Danny and make her she said he says there are pleasure houses in Lys and Tyrosh where men would pay handsomely to bed the last Targaryen Lys and Tyrosh of course Lys is our topic today and then it comes back around because Illyrio mentions to Tyrion when he's talking about his lover Sarah who many of us think was a blackfire so maybe Illyrio paid to bed the last blackfire and that's how that all got started Entirely possible. How much would Illyrio? How much would Illyrio have paid to bed Amon? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but that's a question I never thought I'd consider. But here I go. <laughs> so yeah, think about that. Maybe think more about Nina's thing than Sean's, but <laughs> still, <laughs> you can. Of course, I want to shout out all the places you can listen to us on Spotify, Google Play, Amazon now as well. It's all the all the big players are getting into podcasting. It's really a a different world in podcasting than it was when we got started 10 years ago. And iTunes was basically it. Podcasting's changed. It's still a wild west here, too. Lots of wild Westeroses today. We'll start with, the, as we usually do, with our trivia question. And you all can send us questions anytime, either during the episode or before it, on Patreon, Discord, or Facebook, Twitter, or email. Those are the best ways. The trivia question is, who is the first Lysine character we meet on page in A Song of Ice and Fire? On page, not what we hear about, because there's a few who get mentioned that aren't. Like Varus. Varus might be Lysine. We're not actually 100% sure Varus is Lysine, but he's mentioned before he appears, and there's someone else who appears before he does. The first question I have for you all, an idle question, because as George says, there's no rules on this, so there's no right or wrong here. I mean, if you want to pronounce Lys chocolate, that's wrong. But if you want to say Lys or Lys or Lys, it's... They're all right, basically. How do you say it, Sean? Do you do you, have you thought? I personally vacillate. I say if I if I were to say it ten times in an episode, I'd probably say it three different ways. So I don't really have a way. Do you have you noticed how you say it? I I probably also vacillate, but I think it probably should quote unquote be pronounced least. That's how I, I think, think too. But yeah, there are basic rules of phonetics, and there's a kabillion exceptions to them. Especially so it makes names, it tricky, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. But a Y on the end, I would, or an E on the end, would make it lice. Yeah, and two S's would make it list. But that would be Eng- are those, okay, those okay, are like well, English rules. I don't know. I mean, this is English, so I, I don't think. Know. <laughs> yeah, I think letters. that 
Uh, it depends somewhat on how do you say the different Valyrian names. Oh. If you say Corlys, Eris, all that, uh, you probably say Lys. Yeah. I personally say Corlys, Eris, because I don't because I don't want to say Anus. I want to say Anis. <laughs> so everything you just did say it. Everything stems from me not wanting to say Anus. I want to say <laughs> everything. Yeah, everything. <laughs> but because of that, I have to say lease to keep it consistent with core lease, you know, Aries and all of that. But I had a good conversation with people recently who, you know, that if they said Corliss, they probably also said Eris and they were yeah. also consistent going the other way. Yeah. But I do say Lyseni. Say it. <laughs> so folks say it outside. I uh, say it out loud and, and test yourself and say how you say it. I do think when you alter the word, it is reasonable to alter the pronunciation, yeah. just like in other rules of phonetics. I can't come up with going off the top of my head, but I think it's totally appropriate. To well, say, no one would say, Le- if you say lease, what what about the the people when it's list? You say Lisenny? Because I've never heard someone say Lisenny. I've always seen Lisenny. Yeah. So it changes to Lisenny when you're talking yes, about plural. Yes, I, I think so. And Nina says the same thing. She says, she pronounces it lease, but Lisenny. This. So again, George says there's no rules on that. So say what, say it the way you want to. Go ahead, call it chocolate. Yeah, call it chocolate if you want. <laughs> Incidentally, this this topic was a little bit harder to, to search for because if you search for LYS on a search of ice and fire, you get Corlys. <laughs> oh, do you really? It partial words like that. Yeah, so you get, and you get other things where the word ends in L-Y and the next word starts with S. Oh. Like, clearly she said, because yeah. it ends clearly yeah. L-Y and then she starts with an S. So it's L-Y-S and uh, the S is in them. And it's like, oh, that's annoying. So I guess no, you do a weird. bunch of I, for Lyseni and Lyseni. Lyseni's no like, problem. Yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> When I searched for list, by the way, it found lying. Every, every like, Same. lying yeah. down or not telling the truth, it, all those results. It thought it was a tense. Things. Yeah. Like, I thought it, you were saying mm, lies. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like also lying. That was a little tricky. But it was fun because I just ran yeah. into other topics along the way and just got to play around with different stuff. Noteworthy, even narrowing down the search with Control F, there was still a lot of results, hundreds yeah. of results. I think. I think there was over a hundred just in World of Ice and Fire. Hundreds. More I agree. Than the rest I, of the novels. In fact, this next comment I have written in the document is: there are probably more Lyseni in the story than any other nation outside Westeros. I think there's more than Bravos. Maybe not more than Marine, but Marinese aren't all over the place. We just see so many of them in one place because we're at Marine. But Lyseni are just all over the place because they're sailors, they're sell swords, they're sell sails, they're Valyrian heritage, they're a lot of rich people in Lisa. There's, yeah. It's definitely the most for a place we haven't actually gone to. Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah, because like, we've been to Bravo. more Marine or more Dothraki, but we've been to those places. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. Now, all Targaryens, since Aegon the Unworthy, including his brother and sister, Aemon the Dragon Knight and Princess Nerys, are descended from Lara Rogare, who was their mother, Kind of an absentee mother. We'll get into that later. But Aegon, <laughs> the unworthy, at one and a half years old, tried to beat up his baby brother, Aemon the Dragon Knight, before he had that nickname. It's hard to get a nickname, the Dragon Knight, when you're an infant. But he beat him with his egg, his dragon egg. He smacked him several times. They're like, they caught this one and a half year old beating his infant brother. So Aegon the Unworthy was bad right away. You can't blame his mom for that one. I do think it's important to have your mother around, but this dude was bad right away. (laughs) Mothering wasn't going to stop this guy from being terrible. But also, of course, that means all Blackfires have this bloodline as well. That's right when they split, because Aegon the Unworthy is the one who fathered all the Blackfires. And of course, the Blackfires also have Tyrashi heritage, which we saw that connection in that Grazdan Moeraz quote in Tyrosh and Lease. They are rather well connected. That, of course, includes non-Blackfires like Bloodraven. And Shiera Seastar is Lyseni on both sides. Her mother was Lyseni, and then her father, Aegon the Unworthy, 
half Lysenny. So there you go. It has its own unique portion of leftover Valyrian supremacy, which continues in its on its own in a manner rooted in similar ideals, which is the rich and powerful rule over those who aren't. It was built with a very few select industries in mind, mostly of the luxury and pleasure variety. The demands would be immense and extreme. I mean, think of how perfect rich people's playgrounds have to be, like the luxury hotels. Like everything is just perfect. You have people cleaning every little speck of dust. Everything is folded perfectly. Okay, so... My idea now is that there's a show, The White Lotus. Yeah. The, the, you know how it's an anthology series where they go to a different resort every <laughs> they're season? Li- they're so going to season license. three, they're going to go to me and Lise. Yeah, it's, it's an HBO show. They can do the crossover. It is HBO. It is anthology. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's pretty good, actually. So just com- imagine the demands put on like the service staff. And of course, in least there's lots of slavery. So you can't just have people doing whatever they want. You have to develop this. You have to have skills to please entertain and occupy the richest, most powerful people in the world who were on vacation and they expect it to be perfect, right? They've had access to the best there is. They're the richest people on the planet. They've, they know, they've, they've entertained themselves with everything there, there can be. They've bought all the luxuries, been to all the fancy places. Everything money can buy, they've done. But Lease was the place they chose that beats all those other places. It was built to be the best of that ilk. We, we come to a concept that's very familiar by now. George R. R. Martin loves to take things from the real world and turn them up to 11. Lease is the 11 of rich people's resort destinations. But the question this place asks is, what happens to a playground for the ultra, ultra elite when there are no more ultra, ultra elite? Now there's just regular ultra elite or just elite, right? There's no dragon lords anymore. That's a huge difference. There's nothing like that. But the place obviously still exists, caters to the rich people of the world who remain after the dragon lords. Let's get to our first mentions. Unsurprisingly, the first mention of the place is in Danny One, A Game of Thrones. After Sir Willem had died, the servants had stolen what little money they had left. And soon after, they had been put out of the big house. Danny had cried when the red door closed behind them forever. They had wandered since then from Bravos to Mir, from Mir to Tyrosh, and on to Cohor and Volantis and Lys, never staying long in any one place. Her brother would not allow it. The usurper's hired knives were close behind them, he insisted. So Danny had never seen one. Yeah, yeah, he didn't actually send them. <laughs> Viserys was paranoid, but that's neat, right? I'd forgotten that that Danny has been to Lys. I mean, she was very young, apparently. Although Nina suggests that maybe it was the one of the last places they went before going to Pentos. When Daenerys arrives in Astapor, she thinks to herself that it was an old city, but not so populous as it was in its glory, nor near so crowded as Carth or Pentos or Lys. So she remembers enough of it to remember that it was crowded and Danny was also just in Carth in Clash of Kings and had lived in Pentos for half a year in the start of a Game of Thrones but to include Lise in this comparison may suggest that it's fresher in her memory that she's using it as a more recent comparison so that's entirely possible that it was one of the last stops which means that maybe she was there when she was like nine or ten because I, I believe she, I think she's 12 or 13 at the beginning so yeah and if they moved on quickly yeah maybe she was there for a few months or something Probably the most notable early mention, rather than first mentions, before Lise becomes much of a topic, it's just a name that's a place she's been. It doesn't really register much that early on. 
the tears of lease, though, comes up really quickly, given to John Aaron and many notable others throughout history, rather, and surely plenty of others who you don't, it was never discovered that it was the tears of lease that did that, right? It's not the easiest poison to figure out. That's the whole point of using it. Exactly. <laughs> it is exactly the point. You're right. That it takes people who have seen it before in Fire and Blood. Rigo Draz figures it out after several people have been poisoned. Those people being Maester Culliper, Casella Staunton, Septimerium, Elaine Royce, Samantha Stokeworth, and Liana Valerian, all by that jerk Andrew Farman. Also, Gaiman Palehair and Daenera Valarian, victims of Unwin Peak trying to do that. Same thing, poison them, but Daenera actually survived. Gaiman, unfortunately, did not. You have a question here about how old was Willem, Sean? Curious about him? Yeah, it made me wonder, did he die of natural causes or could he have been poisoned? Is there someone who might have been out to get him, out to... Probably not. (laughs) He died really slowly over... Like, he had some sort of wasting disease. It took months to kill him. Nina suggests that it was... It prematurely aged him because it seems like he went from whole and hearty to walking with a cane and gray haired really quickly, which and then bedridden. He was bedridden for months before he died. So it wasn't it's possible he was poisoned and survived the poisoning and lingered and then died. But there's not much reason to suspect that because it I mean, why? Why wouldn't you kill the kids? Why wouldn't you? Nothing else happened. Like there's a follow up. The only the, the argument for that, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, would be that Varys and Illyrio didn't want Danny and Viserys to have someone a, a capable protect, a, a capable protector. They so they wanted, were doing yeah. like they were weakening yeah. him, um, okay. even if just keeping him weak. I, that yeah, would be the okay. argument: is it would be yeah. Varys and Illyrio doing it? That makes some sense, I suppose. Yeah, I, I can't deny. I can't dismiss. If they're that trying argument. to manipulate where Danny ended up. Yeah, who mm-hmm. was watching over them? You steer them toward Pentos or whatever. Yeah. Okay, because his death meant that it all fell apart. They didn't have a protector. They became homeless after that. So yeah. And they, they became more desperate. Maybe that's what got them to go to Pentos or maybe someone else encouraged them to go to Pentos and Lirio just herded them that way without them realizing it. <laughs> Varus helping. The next first mention, the first mention in the world of ice and fire comes from the tales of Nymeria, princess Nymeria of the Roinar quote. The battered tattered remainder of the 10,000 ships sailed west with princess Nymeria. This time she made for Westeros. After so much wandering, her ships were even less seaworthy than when they first departed Mother Roin. The fleet did not arrive in Doran complete. Even now, there are isolated pockets of Roinar on the step zones, claiming descent from those who were shipwrecked, other ships blown off course by storms made for lease, or Tyrosh giving themselves up to slavery in preference to a watery grave. They were sailing forth from the Summer Isles this particular time. Deep into their wanderings, they had been given a smaller island by the Summer Islander. They didn't want to give too much to them because they were afraid of upsetting Valyria. But this island they were living on didn't have sufficient soil and food production, so they had to move on. So it's not like... uh, So the people who gave up and and gave themselves up for slavery to Lys and Tyrosh had already lived there and been through that, had already fled Valyria's destruction of their old cities in, on the, along the Roinar, and had lived in Sothorios. So they had lived in awful, awful places. So they went through a lot before this last resort. And slavers, for them, it's, it's really frustrating to think about this. Like these slavers who are awful people think of, of uh, human beings as, as goods. To them, this was like free stuff washing ashore. Refugees coming in like, yep, more money for us. That's what they see of it. For most like humane people would think, oh, these people need help. He's like, no, these people are perfect. We're going to capture them and make money from them. Yeah. You that's the, the way they think. What's that? Soundtrack for all that? What? It's Papa Roach. <laughs> Last resort. <laughs> but there's no roaches there. They keep it very clean and tidy. 
Now, this was perhaps too long ago for any of those Rhoynish bloodlines to have survived that desperate self-enslavement. And we've covered those Nymeria and those refugees extensively in our Nymeria episodes. Check those out if you're interested in more. Let's get to the description and geography of Lys and describe what's in the area and the climate and all that. Here we go. Lys, the most beautiful of the free cities, enjoys what is perhaps the most salubrious climate in the known world. Bathed by cool breezes, warmed by the sun, on a fertile island where palms and fruit trees grow in profusion, surrounded by blue-green waters teeming with fish, Lys the Lovely was founded as a retreat by the dragon lords of old Valyria, a paradise where they might refresh themselves with fine wines and sweet maids and soothing musics before returning to the fires of the freehold. To this day, Lys remains a feast for the senses, a balm for the soul. Its pillow houses are famed through all the world, and sunsets here are said to be more beautiful than anywhere else on Earth. So it's a real mixture of just beautiful natural environment and horrific behind the scenes. It's the ultimate example of make it look good to hide all the evil and bad things that are below the surface. It's the opposite in some ways of the slavery of Slaver's Bay, which they're not trying to disguise anything. They're trying to make it look nice. It's more brutality rather than coercion. And uh, yeah, not just a paralyzed for the elite, for the dragon lords, for the 40 families of Valyria. Surely their upper level lords could hang out there too, most likely. But if not, I mean, it just makes it even more intense. And these industries would have all had to been modified to serve a different set of elite after the fall of the freehold. It's difficult to imagine just how amazing the art, the amenities, all that stuff at a place made for such people would be. They're used to palaces in Valyria that have existed for 5,000 years. They've been outdoing each other with fanciness, with their extreme wealth. I mean, it's just hard to imagine how incredible it would be. And the incredible labor that other people would have had to put in to make it happen. So <laughs> I see you're interested in this word salubrious here. Yeah. Did you, did you all know what it meant? Do you, can you tell me the definition of salubrious, Aziz? I, I would guess that welcoming something along that line, welcoming or just... Health-giving and healthy. Health-giving, okay. So salubrious weather, healthy weather, pleasant and not run down. So you you were you were on the right. You definitely had the right tone of it. Yeah, not right quite, vibe. but close. Yeah, but it's interesting. So healthy climate. So I wonder if like sometimes some places like dry would be good. Hum. I mean, this isn't necessarily humid, even though it sounds it's, like it's a wet climate. Even though it's on an island, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a difference between dry in 110, yeah, and dry in 75. Yeah. Right. It's probably not like Panama. Probably not like Death Valley. It's probably not like the North Pole. <laughs> yeah, I think of it like the Caribbean. I think of other places like other fancy places like the French Riviera, but that's not maybe not the right climate, but maybe it is. I haven't been there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think of it like Colorado. Oh, okay. Hey, hey, hey. Well, you don't have islands in Colorado. <laughs> but the, but the climate. Salubrious weather. Salubrious weather. Yeah, you do have that. Yeah. Nina says it's interesting to consider what kind of architecture might still be around to reflect this was a playground for the Dragon Lord Elite. They probably didn't have like the architecture of Dragonstone. They're not trying to intimidate people or I don't know how the rainfall is there if they need to have the gargoyles for rain control, <laughs> but they would have like 
stables for visiting dragons, some dragon pit-ish type spots, maybe not with domes, but if those existed, I mean, there had to be spots for dragons. It's a dragon lord place. Maybe those have all been, maybe they're all parking lots now. I don't know. <laughs> but you, what, what happens to such towers things? for them to land on? Ooh, platforms. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. That's really neat, like helipads. Yeah. I <laughs> wonder if they had uh, air traffic controllers or anything. You know how helipads have the big H? It's the big D. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, or whatever the D, whatever Valyrian for that is. Yeah, they would have to compensate for dragons landing. You need spaces for them to land. And yeah, uh, there, Nina wonders, are any of the manses, any of the buildings named after Dragonlord families? Like Jelena Bellarius Way <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> the Explorer of Satorios and yeah, stuff like that. But since the climate is so much nicer, that like that's the, the air thing. No, no wonder it's salubrious compared to Valyria, which has freaking lava and ash and brimstone everywhere. Like comparatively, that's... I mean, damn. I imagine there's no lava channels at in lease. And that's got to be part of the appeal. Like, whoo, this is much nicer than where we live. Like, uh, my palace at home is amazing, but boy, this climate is so much better. And the dragons would be fine there, too. Like, you don't, we talked about how, like, Bravos and the Wall, places like that, Lorath, Ib. We, there's evidence dragons have been there, but living there for long periods of time, nah. The dragons don't like it there, but at least they could, they would probably be fine there. It's warm there. Maybe, maybe not as nice as a volcano. But they probably wouldn't be upset about being taken there. So the enormous wealth to build an industry capable of pleasing a dragon lord is now pivoted elsewhere. And a lot of that industry previously existed. You got to have deep pockets. And <laughs> we are a dragon rider family. They owned vast estates, mines, plantations, endless other businesses, all those things went to other people afterwards. So let's pull up the map real quickly. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see it. If you're looking on, if you're listening on a podcast, if you're using Spotify, you could flip the video on for just a minute. That's one of the features Spotify has now. It's really nice. You can have the video on or have it on, toggle it on when you need to, and otherwise just listen. So you can see there, it's south of the Orange Shore. That's what that area of Essos is called near the Disputed Lands. It's isolated, but not super isolated. It's isolated by the sea. It's not that far from the mainland, though. That gives it some advantages. It keeps it from being invaded by land armies and makes it capable of picking up a lot of business through trade, passing back and forth. That's actually a really important thing. They're close to the Stepstones. And if you listen to our Stepstones episode, you see how that's such an important area to control in terms of piracy and shipping. Lease isn't very far from that. A lot of tra trade coming from the east or going west from the east has to pass by lease. They don't have it on lockdown like Karth has on the Jade Gates or sometimes occasional pirate lords do, but they still get a lot of taxes and business by being well-placed. In terms of location, they're very well-placed for wealth. Almost a straight line ease, like seriously, a straight line almost, you get to Volantis. Almost ditto, straight line gets you, you can draw a straight line from lease that passes through Pentos and gets to Bravos without making the line not straight. You can go right there. So, of course, you can't travel that way, but just to, to note how nicely lined they are, Norvos and Kohar would be farthest travel-wise. Lorath, farther by total distance, but likely faster given ship travel. So that's all neat. Nina says it says the literal polar opposite of Bravos. Polar included in that definition because of the climate's very different. It's least is the southernmost of the free cities or tied with Volantis and southernicity. Bravos is the northernmost where Lise was seemingly founded specifically 
for serving dragon lords and their interests, Bravos was founded to get away from and hide from dragon lords. And yeah, very much the opposite. Not to mention the more clear opposition of slavery versus militant anti-slavery. Right, very opposite. And Bravos courtesans and are our celebrities in their own right. They can work their way up the ladder. Even even common sex workers in Bravos for free women. At least sex is like inherently tied to slavery and ownership by usually by men. There are a few exceptions where someone gained high influence as a woman there, as in coming up from the bottom. But even her, she had a noble upbringing. Lynette Hightower is a, one of the best examples of a character we know hasn't actually been on page, but has been talked about quite a bit. And she has great influence over Tregar or Mola or Molin, who is the one she left Jorah for. But she's his con- she's his concubine. She's not even a wife, so she's just a slave that has a lot of rights in a lot of ways, but isn't called that by name. More on her later. She's going to co- pop up a few times in this episode. My mind was still lingering on what we were talking about a moment ago, just thinking about the idea of the Dragon Lord showing up to Lise and all the amenities that are there and how everything is designed for them and such. But it made me wonder, say someone showed up and refused to pay. <laughs> what do they do? Mm. Like, you're like, they've got a dragon. How do they stop? But there must be some sort of either social understanding among the Targaryens to not mess it up or yeah. wonder if they employed some Targaryens to defend it or enforce the rules there. I wonder if they had some dealings with higher Targaryen lords to keep the lowers I think in check, if you will. Like, yeah. Well, I think two things. One, we should note, when you say Targaryen, you mean Valyrian, I think. Right, Just yeah, sorry. Um, sometimes it would be Targaryen. Yes, yeah. sometimes it would be Targaryen. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I, I wonder how, like, really big luxury resorts handle that now. Like, what happens if some super rich guy. What if Steve Jobs, when he was alive, refused to pay his bill at the French Riviera? I don't know. <laughs> they have a, the, the credit, modern credit systems mm-hmm. would handle that. I suppose there's a lot of the credit things are there's a lot more linked. Infrastructure in place but, for that in, in modern times. Yeah. But. I think that there have been like articles written from the perspective of, of people who worked at the big resorts and spas and things like that, where they, I, I've read stories of rich people who are out of the loop. And so they don't, manage tip, their own or money. they don't manage their own money. Like they don't do anything with it. So it's not that lucrative for them. Sometimes. Westerosi lords, a lot of Westerosi lords think managing money is beneath them. Yeah, I would so think that the Targaryen tribe, see, now you got me doing it too. The Valyrians would probably, <laughs> the dragon lords would probably, a lot of them would probably have that same attitude. I and mean, some of them would be, honing in on it. Like, I wanna, I'm going to make the most out of this. But some of them be like, ah, it's beneath me. I can imagine some of them being wealthy enough, whatever, they just pay whatever. They don't even notice yeah. the, the expenses. They could be Which also might create yeah. a sort of inflation on an island. They could just keep charging more and more because the Valerians pay no matter what. Yeah. But somewhere in there, there's got to be some jerk who thinks he shouldn't have to pay. Well, here's the thing. You know? I really, I'm really glad you asked this question, Sean, because it sets up one of the main themes of this top of this episode, which is I see lease as a version of like the valyrian mafia i think it's a it's like a valyrian mafia city it's sex trade is a big sex trafficking is a big part of mafia strip clubs big part of mafia ownership that's a big part of their business and taking care of people who don't pay their bills (laughs) that's something else the mafia mafia handles right that's a mafia job you threaten you 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 push them maybe you kill a few of their slaves or something like that just to teach them a lesson awful evil stuff but this is mafia this is organized crime we're talking about so you i mean it's an evil topic this might not be the exact parallel you're trying to draw but i can just see how someone who's in a mafia who's literally murdered people and responsible for other people murdering other people why do they ever bother paying their bill? 
maybe you pick and choose your battles, right? Yeah. I'm not going to get too much trouble on me for this Italian restaurant that paid me well for the food I like or yeah. treated me. I'll go ahead and pay that bill. Some other guy that rubbed me the wrong way, I'm not paying because he gave me new tires. What's he going to do about yeah, it? I can see. Exactly. Yeah. And and I, so we say mafia, which is Italian, and we're, rather than just saying organized crime, because lots of organized crime groups around the world are involved in a lot of these same businesses like sex trafficking and stuff like that, luxury goods, resorts, strip clubs, like same thing. But the reason I focus on mafia, specifically Italian, is because the, the names in lease are very Italian. We have the Rogare family. Heck, one of them is named Fredo Rogare. That's, I'm pretty sure George was thinking of the Godfather. One, Fredo Corleone is one of the main characters, one of the sons of the Godfather. And there's more than that, too. It's this, this parallel, this connection goes deeper. So I'm, Sean brought it up in a way that maybe he wasn't expecting to lead into it. But yeah, things work out sometimes really nicely. Mm -hmm. Good job. Good job. So let's let's work our way into that a little closer by continuing along with the regional stuff here. The history of Lise is inextricably tied to Mir and Tyrosh, their sister cities. As siblings are known to be, they can be staunch allies and deadly enemies depending on time and place and subject. Here's a quote to get us started on that. The three cities surround the large, fertile heel of Essos, the promontory that divides the Summer Sea from the Narrow Sea and was once part of the land bridge that joined the continent to Westeros. The fortress city of Tyrosh stands upon the northernmost and easternmost of the steppe zones, the chain of islands that remained when the Arm of Dorne fell into the sea. Mir rises on the mainland where an ancient Valerian dragon road meets the tranquil waters of a vast gulf known as the Sea of Mirth. Lys is to the south, on a small archipelago of islands in the Summer Sea. All three cities have claimed part or all of the lands between them, which we know today as the Disputed Lands. For all attempt to fix borders between the domains of Tyrosh, Mir, and Lys have failed. Countless wars have been fought for their possession. They are also referred to as the Three Daughters, which is good because we can't have them be called the Three Sisters. That would be confusing because of the Sisters' <laughs> Islands in the Bay of Ice there. You can see they have this intermittent connection. They're, they were founded, we're not sure how close to each other in terms of chronology, but they obviously are, they form like a triangle, like maybe the Valyrian Triangle of the Southwest. Jasiki comments, Lise is light, Mir is dark, and Tyrosh is colorful. Eh, yeah. That's true. Tyrosh is colorful. They have all those colorful dyes. They're very known for their bright colors and beards and, and clothing. Good catch, Jasiki. I like that. Let's talk about the people a little bit. Another overview quote from The World of Ice and Fire featuring the three daughters who have a lot in common. In history, culture, custom, language, and religion, these three cities have more in common with one another than with any of the other free cities. They are mercantile cities protected by high walls and hired swords, Dominated by wealth rather than birth, cities where trade is considered a more honorable profession than arms. Lys and Mir are ruled by conclaves of magisters chosen from amongst the wealthiest and noblest men of the city. Tyrosh is governed by an archon selected from amongst the members of a similar conclave. All three are slave cities where bondsmen outnumber the freeborn three to one. All are ports and the salt sea is their life's blood. Like Valyria, their mother, these three daughters have no established faith. Temples and shrines to many different gods line their streets and crowd their waterfronts. Lyseni language is a dialect 
or corruption of high Valyrian, but it's described as very musical, flowing liquid, the, the most beautiful of the Free City's versions of High Valyrian, which makes sense given they were expected to serve and please the elite. So they'd have to speak properly and nicely. And it's mentioned that there's a lot of music in Lease. That's same reason. There would be the music would be there to entertain those folks. And behind that is when when the people paying for the music are gone, you still have the musicians that spent their lives learning this music. And some of them would have would go solo. They would write their own song. I mean, some of them would have been doing that anyway. I mean, that's a lot of times as a musician, you have multiple streams of income to survive. And there would still be business for them. There were, of course, the all the pleasure houses and inns and everything would still exist. They would just be serving or catering to a different form of elite. Now, in particular, Bravos and Pentosh are also bigger, biggest lovers of music. I'm not sure why it's those three that it landed on. We can we have a good reason for lease anyway. Bravos, maybe because of the extreme freedom and because of the huge variety of of diversity there, maybe. Pentosh, I'm not really sure. We haven't seen Pentosh except inside Illyrio's Mance. We don't know as much. But maybe because it's so closely linked to Arash, it, it, some of that bleeds over. But anyway, that's a story for another day. The quote also refers to conclaves of magisters. That's an oligarchy, basically. Very similar to the freehold of Illyria. Just the rule by the elite, rule by the wealthy. If you're not wealthy, you're not in power. If you are, you are, if you want to be. It's not quite that simple, but it's good enough for our description for now. As for the people, this is a little interesting point here. Let's have another quote. The blood of Valerius still runs strong in Lys, where even the small folk oft boast pale skin, silver gold hair, and the purple, lilac, and pale blue eyes of the dragon lords of old. The Lycene nobility values purity of blood above all and have produced many famous and infamous beauties. Even the Targaryen kings and princes of old sometimes turn to Lyse in search of wives and paramours. For their blood, as for their beauty, many Lycene worship a love goddess whose naked, wanton figure graces their coinage. So this idea is a little interesting. You wonder if look, we don't really have this notion that the dragon lords bred for purity in terms of looks. They did it for dragon lords to keep their dragon power. That's the blood that we're most concerned above all else. I'm sure they cared. I mean, it's nice to be good looking, I suppose. But all other considerations fall by the wayside when it comes to keeping their dragon rider power. That's the blood that really matters. That's the purity of blood that actually matters the most. The Lyseni don't have that. They don't have dragon lord blood. So for them, they're just classic racism. <laughs> they're just like, our race is best. We look the best. We're the best. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. So this is more like familiar to the real world. There's no dragon blood in our world that we're like trying to factor into why people do what they do. Now, as far as Lysine paramours for the Targaryens, there's probably that's a little bit of an exaggeration there. We only know of one Lyseni wife to a Targaryen who we've already mentioned, Lara Rogari, and only two known Lyseni paramours to a Targaryen, Mizaria, who we're going to see in House of the Dragon, and Serene of Lys. And Serene was like Aegon the Unworthy's like ninth lover. I mean, he had a kid with her, Shiera Seastar. This the Lyseni regards were obviously a huge influence on Aegon III and Westeros in a bit. And of course, as we mentioned, all these Targaryens are descended from Lara and Blackfires too and Bloodraven and all that. But that might be about it. There's no, so this multiple lovers, if, if maybe we just don't know about them. Maybe there's some other kings that had Lyseni lovers that just didn't make it in the books because they, nothing was dramatic about that relationship. Maybe like Makar had a Lyseni lover because his wife died 
before Dunkin' Egg. So uh, are we supposed to think that Maycar went his whole life without ever having a lover again? Yeah, I mean, he's the kind of guy that maybe you could see that. But uh, even Tywin had lovers after Joanna died. And Tywin's the kind of guy you would think, maybe that guy just, he's just so cold and soulless that he doesn't need <laughs> human comfort. But no, even Tywin does. Even Stannis probably does. And most likely Maycar did as well. So there are some gaps in the record that some of this could fit in. But right now, it's like, eh, I don't know about that. We don't really have these mentions to back that up. Maybe when Stefan Baratheon went out looking for a bride for Rhaegar on behest by, on Aerys's behest, they definitely would have gone to lease. And it's suspicious that they didn't come back with a match. I think that there's a lot of conspiracy theories of like they didn't find someone worthy of Rhaegar in the entire world. Really? How hard were they looking? <laughs> <laughs> hmm, I don't know about that. But, but again, we come all back. If any of that's true, if Stefan Baratheon, they just tanked their mission on purpose, Yandel wouldn't know about that. Right. Yandel would have no idea. Yandel would have no clue. He wouldn't. This wouldn't be public knowledge. I was thinking about this from the perspective of Yandel, what he might be trying to present to Tommen, mm. like that it would be beneath you to go to some island of sex workers to find a wife. Don't do that like the Targaryens did. We're better than that. I wonder if that's some yeah, he could have that view of intent it. behind it. Or- yeah. Yeah, I mean, he might be stereotyping a bit. He's never been there, most certainly, right? <laughs> and we've talked about that before, how the farther away from Westeros we get, the less accurate the maester's writings probably are. Maybe this is an ex- a small example of that, where he's exaggerating their presence in amongst House Targaryen. Maybe he's trying to build up, hey, you're the king, you can do anything. You can go anywhere in the world to try to find a lover. Yeah, yeah, good point, yeah. I can see a, different, a couple different angles where he might be trying to... I don't know, make his writing more appealing to a king. Does that yeah. make sense? The way he's presenting his story. Tom might be like, ooh, you know. So a little more on the looks thing. Nina points out that, yeah, it's they're maybe not as purely nobly Valyrian as the ones living behind the black walls in Volantis, but it's the same energy. They're trying to channel the authority and supremacy of the Valyrian freehold by doing things similarly. They can't, they don't have the dragons, but maybe they can have like dragony stuff around and they can look like the target, the dragon Lords. They can have the purple eyes and silver gold hair and act like them act authoritative and act superior. And, and they would have learned how to do that by having, this was the place the dragon Lords came on vacation all the time. And they got to see them behave and they got to see how they acted and they would follow in their footsteps as much as possible to, to have, to be like them. So it's an extremely corrupt nobility. Probably their citizenry are pretty corrupt as well. But again, this is, we don't have a lot on the day-to-day Lyseni. We don't know much about them. We know a lot about the lowest of the low and the highest of the high. In between the middle class, we know a little less about, I guess. Danny, the big question is, will Danny come here? This is something we're going to come back and forth on all throughout the episode because Danny is by far the most likely to go there besides Tyrion, who if if one of them goes, they probably both go. She's just gotten done with Slaver's Bay. Let's let's paint you a little picture here, a scenario. She's finished Slaver's Bay, probably very bloodily, probably very fiery, blood and fire, of course. She's gonna she's gone to Volantis by then. She might be sick of it all by now. She's like more slavery, more incredibly like five. The way she was five to one in Volantis, it's three to one in lease slaves to, to citizens. So not as out of whack, but still really intense in terms of that ratio 
Danny would see the niceness, the prettiness. The, she would see right through it, though. She's just seen all this now. She's like, <laughs> it's not going to fool her and think, oh, they have it nice here. Oh, the slaves are traded nicely here. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> no way. One possible ending for Lisa's. <laughs> Danny just destroys it. She's like, no, this is a, a stain on the planet. <laughs> it must be destroyed. There's no rehabilitating this place. I can see she might be a little bit more discriminant, right? Oh, yeah. She, rather than just murder every slave owner in the street, she might have some sort of trial or interviews to observe how different slaves are treated. And some people do get murdered in the streets, but some people maybe give are given options yeah. and uh, put in charge of new programs or something. I, I would like to see that, but... It's a whole freaking book. I don't know how much George is going to get into the yeah. management of another city. Yeah, I mean, if she does similar things, like if, she, if, he, if he sets up one thing in Slaver's Bay, he can say and similar things were put in place. But yeah, you're right. It is That is one of the reasons I think maybe she'll just go overboard and destroy a lot of it or all of it, rather, just to make it simple. And that would also solve the writing problem of it being too long now but of course i don't know i don't i'm not predicting that danny's just gonna kill everyone at least that seems a bit much but i'm very sure that if she goes there she will be like this place is terrible right like maybe not as terrible as volantis or marine but maybe she might think see it as pretty much just as bad I can't remember. There's no way I'm going to quote it right, and I can't remember who said it. But there, there's a quote one time that stuck with me a little bit. It said it was something to the effect of, like, you can't change the world. There's just no way. You can try if you want, but there's too much, too far for you to fix everything. So focus on what's right around you. Focus on your home, your your family, your friends. Just do the best with that. I wonder if on some level that will be what Danny realizes. Like, everywhere she goes, there are these problems. Maybe I just need to go to Westeros and deal with those problems. Like yeah. if that's my plan Maybe. to go to Westeros. Or if I'm going to deal with problems everywhere I go, might not ever get to Westeros. Or like if she, she hears about the others, the other. that becomes like the most important that's problem. That's the real problem. Yeah, and so yeah. she has to skip. Yeah. yeah, that that would also enable her to just bypass Lisa and Volantis and be like, okay, I don't have time for this. So a lot of different possibilities here. It's very interesting. And one of the reasons she would really hate it too is that she, it's, it's, it's got the same upbringing. Like a lot of slaves are born slaves and taught to behave a certain way, like raise like animals to train to jump when someone snaps their fingers or to behave a certain way when a a man walks in the room or to just always bat your eyes or to look a certain way like that kind of thing. That's the kind of stuff that would be taught to them since birth. And that's why it's just so insidious and evil. And three quarters of the population of this place are slaves. I mean, that's what a three to one ratio means, right? So it's completely dependent on slavery for existence and bed slaves. This leads to a lot of kidnapping, similar to the sadly very real existence of sex trafficking. Something like 40 million people are enslaved in 2022, about 5 million of whom are sex slaves. And that doesn't include about 15 and a half million people who are in forced marriages, which is arguably a cousin of sex slavery. In some cases, it is pretty much is that. In a ways, it's almost worse because yeah. it's sort of like condoned by the, the government or the powers that be. Yeah, so the world knows slavery is yeah, wrong. You could, you could and get saved from sex trafficking, you know, from that, yeah. whereas your marriage, what, what's going to happen there to save you? No Nothing. one's coming to save you from the marriage you were forced into. Yeah, and this is where organized crime comes big, roaring back in as a big factor. Like the number one sex traffickers in the world are organized crime. And that's not just the mafia. That's that's all the organized crime groups. It's not defined by ethnicity there. And they do all this in least. They're big into breeding humans, right? They breed people to look a certain way. 
And so they're stealing people and they're breeding them. And the freehold did this a lot. Again, we talk about the influence of the freehold. They were big on breeding and they did magical stuff with it. We can talk about flesh pits and blood magic. The dragon lords, I mean, it's just normal to them. Breeding has been normal for a long time. It's hard to wrap our heads around that, maybe unless you're like a farmer, but even that is just animals. You're not thinking about it as like people. So it's just really, it's normal. Their normal is really terrible. And that's part of why it looks unrehabilitatable to someone like Danny or to us reading about it. And Nina writes, this is what is truly sickening about Lise. And I think very much intentionally on the author's part, it's almost uniformly praised as the loveliest, sunniest, most paradisical of the free cities. But it's just as bad or worse than the others in terms of what's going on, like when you really look at it. And in some ways, Sean, it's like what you said. In some ways, this makes it worse because it seems to be accepted. Like, no, and really, like, even... Even the slavers of the world maybe look at what's going on in Slavers Bay and think, maybe that's going a little too far. But Lisa's like, yeah, it's great. Like, what? It's not great. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's like Westerosi lords are like, no slavery, but let's go on vacation to Lise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, they're, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're totally willing to, to, to partake. This is also like, I, I don't want to justify it in any way, but just what if you, if you got to rank the, how bad different types of slavery are, it's one thing if you have slaves that are generating food and supplies for the world, but slaves that are just there for pleasure. Yes. Like if we're going to cut something out, pleasure should be the first thing, right? Yeah, you're right. It's something. Yeah, it's just ugh, it's so gross. Let's talk about non-human goods that are produced there in Lease. That's a little friendlier of a topic. They, they have alchemists there, poisons and other stuff, big time poisons. We talk about the, the Tears of Lease that was invented there. They also use other poisons like uh, the Strangler is made there as well. So they're big on that. And of course, poisoning makes sense in a city that it, it tries to keep things nice. Poisoning is a much gentler death than slaughtering someone in the street or sending a bunch of mercenaries to butcher someone in their bed. I know that does happen too, but it's that gentler form of violence, that that veneer of sophistication, even though it's still just killing. It might help answer my question from earlier. What if some jerk Targaryen or Valyrian who just doesn't want to pay or is over-demanding within his luxury and they don't want this conflict or destruction... So, we didn't do it. We didn't poison they, them. They can't, per, they can't prove... They know what happened to his food. <laughs> can't prove it was them. So it figures that the next item on the list after poisons is red and white wine. They make wine there. <laughs> so, it's like this goes together. Yeah, and there it's on the same latitude as the arbor. So George paid attention to where things were as far as that goes. So it makes sense. So it has the right climate for that. Tapestries as well, or a lot of tapestries were made there. That's another luxury good. Perfumes, luxury good. So we've got alchemy, wines, tapestries, perfumes. Those are all luxury goods, y'all. Then we have fine long dirks. That's a little bit random. There's a lot of other fine, long things. That <laughs> <laughs> you mean hair, fine, long Valyrian hair. Yeah, yes, that's, that's, what, that's what I meant. When that's I what said you that. meant. Yeah. I wasn't talking about bed slave fellows. <laughs> How about the stems of wine glasses, long, oh, fine oh, yeah. glass stems. <laughs> Have you all ever seen the right? show? Do you, do you remember the show Rome? I know you've seen it. Yeah, show, I yeah. Rome. Do you remember Rome, Sean? Have you seen Rome? Yeah. Okay, so when the two, that the woman, Atia, who was one of the main characters, is trying to make apologies to Caesar's wife, who they have had issues with. And she sends, she's like, okay, I'm going to send this gift to her. And the gift is a slave with a giant penis. <laughs> and they show it and he's got, the penis is decked out in jewels. And she's like, why will, why was, why would this mend the fences? And she's like, huge penis. 
Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what do you mean? Why would this mend the fences? Like, of course. Like, don't you see it? It's right there. <laughs> you know, I absolutely can picture some Lyseni doing that exact thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, you think of bribes as money and stuff, but your mindset to think about lease and it's gross is to think of certain people as part of stuff. That's how they think about it. I mean, I'm not asking you to think about that for real, but to to understand their way of thinking, that is what that is what's happening. Isn't there like a slave that had a Valyrian blade and I was kind of like part of the deal? Yes, I have a note on that later. We're going to get to that. You're a good, good call there for sure. Like how rich are you when your slaves have Valyrian steel? Like Tywin couldn't buy one, <laughs> but the Rogare's Valyrian Rogare slave has Valyrian steel. Now that guy was no ordinary slave, but anyway, we'll get back to him. So Dirk's. You know, real quick, I have to say that a lot of times we talk about the idea that Tywin couldn't buy, but I bet he could have, but he was not going to, he was stingy with the money. He's Maybe. like, I'm not spending that much. Maybe. Yeah. They're trying to take advantage of me because they know I'm rich. I'm not going to, not doing it. It's that. possible. It's possible. Dirk Sir. Diggler's, or the, uh, I mean, Dirk's, yes, fine, long Dirk's. <laughs> we just can't get past this part. No. So even the Dirk's may have been luxury goods to some extent. A Dirk is... It's a type of dagger. It's a type of knife. Dirk is generally more for stabbing rather than cutting. Although some Dirks are more for cutting than the other. There's Highland Dirks and Naval Dirks, basically. There's two main types. I found entirely conflicting information based on... It depends on what country, what tradition, what style, and what time of... Yeah, the the Highland Dirk is Scotland. Scottish is Dirk, and that's one of the most recognized in the world. And that was a multi-purpose tool. Like... England banned Scots from carrying swords around at one point. So they would all carry dirks. And you would swear on your dirk. It was really important. Like it was the the most important object you carried around with you. It was like your honor. It was like your, yeah. It was, it replaced the sword. And then naval dirks are used by a variety of navies around the world from even including now going all the way back to like, does 12th it, century or something like that. Do seamen have Japanese. dirks? Yeah, seamen have dirks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or dirks have seamen. and yeah japanese russian english dirks are just a useful thing so yeah they could be you might have seen some valyrian steel dirks in in lease for example Uh, you wouldn't need nearly as much steel for one of those as for a sword i mean not even half fishing is probably very prominent it is an island after all given the climate it certainly produces some of its own food i mean there's wines but there's not a lot of land so they probably do a good bit of importing During the Lycene Spring, trade was greatly increased to the Seven Kingdoms in the form of a greater variety of luxury goods, which just goes to show again what this place is all about. When the Rogari influence was there, there were just more silks and perfumes and stuff from farther away. These trade networks that Westeros hadn't established, the Lyceni had and and made those connections to Westeros as well, which shows the kind of trade agreements and long-term arrangements they've had with people all over the globe, those trade networks would have been established by the dragon lords or their agents and would have existed in some ways since before the doom. Pretty big deal. So it is a tourist economy, right? Given all that, they import a lot of their food, probably. They have all these luxury goods. You got to have people coming in to pay for all that stuff because the locals can only pay for it so much, right? I mean, it's a vacation destination, just like any resort place. A heterosexual male of decent means can go to a brothel in any decently sized city or town across the known world of Planetos or whatever. So to get people to go to lease, you got to really be awesome to get people to sail there and spend something you can get in any town. You got to make sure it's got to be a lot better to make you travel for it. Thanks to the sheer number of Lyseni in and out of the story and their place in Targaryen history, 
we've got some extra insight into their deities. So let's talk about religion a bit here. One of the main ones seems to be the Weeping Lady of Lys. Arya sees one statue of her in the House of Black and White. And Arya specifically notes that her statue is favored by old women. We wonder if this is a, quote, sexist, ageist, Lysine idea that the Weeping Lady mourns the loss of her beauty, that she's, nobody wants her anymore. That could be the kind of thing that, the way they think, that might be it. And I'd be surprising that a society which literally breeds and trains sex slaves would also consider that losing your beauty is the worst thing to happen to you. Now, we know that's not the case, but a culture that implies that and teaches everyone that, well, you could see why it would work out this way. To teach them as well that they have to find a new place in the world after. Like, all oh, you have to retire and do this other thing. It's a societal hurting mechanism. She has a shrine with a silver, silver statue, this one that, that Arya sees. And there's another one in Lice as well that we hear about. Both of these statues actually weep and the tears fill a bowl. And I guess that just cycles back through and comes back out. Some sort of artifice that keeps it cir circulating. Nina also wonders, is there a connection between the, weep the Weeping Lady and the Tears of Lys? Is that like a just a naming convention? Is that a just a societal idea that they, hey, let's nickname it after the Weeping Lady. Why not? It could be. I mean, the Tears of Lys apparently was a, invented there. That's their one of their patron goddesses. So, meh, yeah, that could make sense. Given that the Weeping Lady is in the House of Black and White, there's a chance she's some sort of death goddess as well, associated with death, which, which fits with the aging thing, I guess, if, if you think about it that way. The, to the, the poison also is clear, odorless, and tasteless, which also tear tears are salty, but they're mostly tasteless. It's close. <laughs> There's a goddess called Pantera, which is also a heavy metal band from Texas <laughs> that no longer exists. It's said to be a six-breasted cat goddess, which isn't strange, because house cats have six to eight nipples. Yes, six to eight. To, meaning seven is upon, yes, some house cats have seven nipples. It doesn't always, they don't always come in pairs. That, that was something I learned this weekend. That's weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't, how did I forget? Yeah. I can't believe I forgot. Ashea is the weeping lady on Michael Arfeld's map. Essos, the map. Essos map. The right. first map that we had any involvement on with Michael, I had reached out to him and asked him about doing an Essos map. And so he decided to depict us on it. And I think it's very fitting because I cry a lot. I do. I do be weeping. I do be weeping. But also <laughs> in his first iteration of that, he just drew me and I have red hair and I said, hey, I don't think that makes any sense at all. And for so Lice. he did a quick hair dye job on me, and I've got some platinum blonde hair for, for Lise, exactly. It works out. Oh, that's fun. You're not old enough to be the weeping lady. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. Now, but you are the as model. As of yesterday, I'm yeah. old enough. I wasn't then, but I am now. <laughs> that's interesting. Pantera, there's some pretty, like... Rogare, Lara Rogare, rather, was a big worshiper of Pantera. They, she See, had I would have loved it if he drawed idol. me as Pantera instead. Oh, Give me six breasts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sean should have seven? been Pantera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also Sagale, who we mentioned not very long ago when we referred to the 1970s, 1967 fan fiction story wrote, George wrote called Only Kids Are Afraid of the Dark. Sagale is the giver of pain, a.k.a. faceless Sagale. There's also a Gale Targaryen, which isn't related, but hey. I, I think it's name. relevant because of the Lyseni connections we have with Viscera Targaryen, Sarah Targaryen, 
and then Majel dying of grayscale. Then we have here mm. another Jahari, another child of Jaharis and Alisan. Gale mm. has a Lysani. I don't know. Okay, I, I, it, it's notable to me. That's interesting. Yeah. So Sagal is sounds like an also sounds like a death god of kind of maybe not a death god, but a tormentor because it's, it's giver of pain, not killer. So yeah, they're not a very happy deity, but apparently worshipped in at least and perhaps elsewhere. There's Indros of the Twilight. And Indros is some we've seen some fervent worshippers of Indros. At one point, one of the I think one of the regards is Indros be praised, or maybe one of the other Lycene characters that comes on screen during Fire and Blood. I think Indros of the Twilight is a transgender deity, uh, capable at, at female by night, male by day. And it says their acolytes can transition, but not by time of day, but by having sex. Now, in practice, this might be a ritualistic thing that in practice, they're just changing clothing, they're just cross-dressing. But given the existence of the faceless men, maybe they really are changing, or maybe just a few of them can, and that makes people think that all of them can. It only takes a few to spread the rumor that they all can, right? An interesting idea. Apparently, they have orgies at twilight when day transitions to night. So, right, that, that makes sense. Mara Rogar. I can't wait that long. <laughs> <laughs> Mara Rogare fled there for sanctuary when the Lysine Spring was collapsing. And she did so wearing men's clothing. So there's a lot of a lot of that going on there. That's interesting. Makes sense sort of in a way to celebrate all forms of sexuality in a place that has celebrates sex, right? Hmm. For them, it would be good for business. They want to they encourage anything you want. Anytime of, you might think it's a little progressive, but nah, not really. For them, it's just, it's about money, I think. They're like, yeah, any type of, anything you want to do, anything you, you want to pay for, well, we're, it's cool. There's also some love goddess. What's interesting is we don't know the name of this love goddess. It might be the Weeping Lady, but probably not. I don't think so. No, just because I, the love... I wouldn't say so. I really don't think so. I don't we, think she gives off that vibe at all. She really doesn't. She's the native love goddess of Lee. She appears on their coins... And she's wanton and naked, which, like, how do you have the weeping lady want? I don't know. That doesn't really fit, especially because especially it seems to be like an advertisement. If you get coins from around the world and you find the naked lady coin and you're like, and let's say you have a cohort coin, you're like black goat. And you got the Valantis coin. This is like a crown and a death's head. You're like, I want to go to the naked lady town versus the, <laughs> versus the, the, the death's head town and the, the black goat town. Like, I've never thought of like coins as advertisement for it, tourism. That was Nina's idea. And I was like, wow, oh, that's a really good call. Because it, it all is, again, it reflects the organized crime nature of this. Whereas like, if you've ever been to like Vegas, you get like Spearmint Rhino bucks handed to you, which Spearmint Rhino is a really famous strip club in Las Vegas. And they have, they give you like coupons that look like a 10 or $20 bill. And you can only spend it at the Spearman Rhino. <laughs> so it's that's an advertisement like, for that place. That's a fun kind of like thought exercise is thinking about the things that happen when you go to Vegas or things you do in Vegas and trying to translate that to the Lyseni experience. Yeah, the so, resort town. Probably, yeah, they probably have gambling there. Yeah, like yeah. for example, <laughs> in my case, when I went to Vegas, they have all these legal dispensaries there. So I did like dispensary tours where because then the drivers get a cut of like, because they brought you <laughs> to it. So they have a reason to do that. Anyways, they have like weed tours type of thing. I went to like 10 dispensaries in like two or three days. But I imagine probably some people go to, to, to lease and just have a drug tour and don't yep. <laughs> aren't, aren't hitting the pillow houses for that at all, but that they have like drug den type things where you can do some like shade of the evening. You can do some Ooh. milk of the poppy. You know, that's an interesting point. I was going to bring that up because when I think about this, we thought about like, what are, what are all the vices that get presented? That's something that maybe there isn't a lot of development on. Maybe they're just 
isn't does, doesn't exist that much in Westeros or in Planetos. There isn't a lot of drugs. No, there is. There's isn't. not like a weed. There should be mushrooms. Like that's the one thing I think there should be. But there doesn't have to be like a cocaine. There doesn't have to be like a anything synthetic, of course. But no, we have looking we there have is, our, we have opiate and we have psychedelics. Yeah, there are opiates. We yeah, have psychedelics opiates. and opiates. Yeah, there are there are, but yeah. it doesn't seem like it's something that people are yeah. I don't know what word I want to use, abusing. Exactly. Or, That's what I mean. You don't see drug uh, abuse or yeah, you, there's alcohol abuse for sure. Any, yeah, yeah. But not yeah. Not as much substance. It doesn't seem to be a slice of culture. It doesn't seem to be something that we see places to go to to get or people yeah. that are stuck on it or i think if george developed essos more we probably would yeah i think in essos there's yeah. probably more and i think if we had a fleet bottom perspective like a pov mm. that lived mm. in in yeah. everything we only see them when they're out of it why would they yeah. be thinking back on like the, the homeless people who are drug addicts like I, yeah. I think they probably do exist though yeah. like yeah some people are hooked on milk of the poppy etc i mean Greg I can also see it being... a little bit as well i suppose He's might be our biggest drug addict. <laughs> Literally yeah. our biggest drug addict. <laughs> I can also see it being a Pandora's box that George has just avoided, right? He's got enough motivations yeah. and plot threads and et cetera, et cetera, that, that might be too much to go off into. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that too. I mean, we, I mean, well, I guess you're on a little bit is one of our drug druggies. He does seem to be, yeah, he, he, he might be like addicted. A little he bit might be hooked on that. A little yeah. hooked on it. On the like, the evening, yeah. It's interesting to have a, Maybe have a functional... Maybe hasn't gotten there yet. Maybe yeah. that's why it's taking him so long to write. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the downfall of Euron. He runs out of shade of the evening and starts to have withdrawal. Like, I can't see my visions anymore. And he just starts to be a terrible leader. And they just <laughs> Even if it only lasts for like a few days, it might be enough to turn people around him against him to, to lose confidence in him. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Okay, so those five gods are could be lice only, especially the unnamed love goddess on the coins. But a lot of them could be worshipped elsewhere outside our knowledge, and they could be, they, they might be originated elsewhere. They may have originated in, like, Valyria. The next two are definitely worshipped elsewhere and lease. Uh, Bacalon, Bacalon, a.k.a. the Pale Child, a.k.a. Bacalon of the Sword, who is also worshipped in Ashai and Bravos at the very least. I think one of the creepiest of the gods Michael has, if you open the Essos map at this point and you look at all those gods at the top, I think Bacalon the Pale Child is incredibly creepy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I recall that we talked about Bacalon because Bacalon appears in And Seven Times Never Kill Man. Bacalon is part of the Thousand Worlds universe that George created. We The Steel Angels worship Bacalon. We talked about that one. It's also a death god. Bacalon is some sort of associated with death or straight up death god. They also worship Relore and Lise, unsurprisingly, because Lise is everywhere. I mean, Relore is everywhere. We covered that in our episode on Relore that was only a few weeks ago. And there is a red temple in Lise specifically. We know that. Temple of Trade is a, a building, an edifice, a, a structure that exists in Lise. We're not sure what it is, but it's also a place of punishment. We know that Lazaro Rogare was scourged to death at the place, of, at the Temple of Trade, and then his bones were just left there for a few years. But it's also a place where people do business. So, I don't know, some sort of like quasi-religious mercantile place that serves as a center of a lot of things. It's some sort of neatest description of it tends to agree, like a prominent merchant prince spot, an economic center, undefined, but some sort of role like that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. 
And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's uh, let's do our little halfway stuff here. TKOK Podcast Network sends a super chat. Shout out to TKOK Podcast Network, by the way. New Dad Podcast and others. That's our good friend, Tommy. Which A Song of Ice and Fire character from Lease is likely to wish Ashea a happy birthday? Wow. Or least likely. Is yeah. that what he's saying yeah, there? Yeah, least, least likely? likely. Oh, I yeah, get it. Yeah, I exactly. see what he did there. I think uh, Gregor Clegane is very unlikely to wish me a happy birthday. I think mute characters, yes, very unlikely. Yeah, I think he's not likely <laughs> to speak. Ilan Payne, unlike, yeah. <laughs> he could draw a candle for you, <laughs> a cake, just do a circle and say HB. <laughs> he's, no, he's illiterate. He doesn't know what HB is. <laughs> I think they're all more likely to wish me a happy name day. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like, what is a birthday? Your mother did it wrong. They named you when you were born? Ah, it's a miracle you survived. Wait, they don't know what a miracle is. It's... A blessing. I don't know what they would say. <laughs> they not use thank the, the gods mir- that you survived. Do they not use the word miracle? I don't think miracle. Is the word miracle appear in A Song of Ice and Fire? I'm going to search it. Check it out. Yeah, good question. I, this is our midpoint to ask questions. I'm asking you. In the meantime, Jasiki also says, on the heels of their comment about black, white, and colorful, Lise is Sicily, Mir is Milan, and Tyrosh is Geneva. That's pretty good. Yeah, th- I mean, you're absolutely right to make connections to the city state, the Italian city states, because George has specifically said that's, if not the main influence, one of the main influences for the free cities. So I have two examples here. I mean, for, in Storm of Swords and in A Feast for Crows, they say the word miracle once per book. And then in the world of ice and fire, miracle is said four times. Oh, okay, so miracle is a word. All right, cool. All right, six, so. Only six times in the whole series, so to say the word miracle, that's not that really not that many times. Maybe he didn't. Miracles don't come up very often. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good yeah. point. Yeah, Christina K says it seems odd that the Lyseni wouldn't be Dragon Riders after all that time exclusively servicing Dragon Riders. Yeah, I mean maybe they could have. Yeah, they could have maybe had some extra bastards that they snuck around, like a couple of Targaryens. That had kids that they didn't know about. I did it again. Targaryens, Valyrians had kids with sex workers there, and they didn't know about those kids. And but still, getting a hold of the eggs, the dragons, dragon riders must have had all that on lockdown pretty well. Yeah, uh, it's hard to hide a dragon. If like you stole an egg and hatched it and started to ride it, they would just come down and be like, "No, I, I think maybe not." But yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, them actually getting access to the dragon or the egg to hatch it or to payment would be difficult. But if there's any social climbing, if any of the 40 Dragon Rider frames needed to bring in outside, maybe they were bringing some, maybe Lise was a yeah. Maybe it went the other way. Lysetti were brought into the Dragon Rider families rather than them becoming Dragon Yeah, I mean, yeah, I could see someone in the 40 family, let's say I see some guy goes to Lise, he has a bastard. Eventually, he doesn't really have many family members to ride mm. his dragon. So that sex worker like reaches out and is like, hey, hey, you've got a daughter or a son. Can Do you want her to come live with you and raise a dragon and have a dragon? There might have been some specific situation where they yeah. someone needed more family members. Some sort of proof. Like, yeah, maybe like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe like a Roose Bolton situation where he's, his, <laughs> hey, well, yeah. that one was he didn't need Ramsey until Ramsey killed Domerick, the kind of situation. 
The darker thought is they may have just been killed, like the Dragon yeah. Riders. There might have just been like this standing order. Hey, if, if we if get, get a pregnant, woman pregnant, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's child is going to be killed. You're going to get poisoned. Too yeah. much of a threat to their power. Otherwise, yeah, yeah you're you're not point. wrong. That's and then they don't possible. really want all their workers out of commission, constantly pregnant. You wonder if that practice changed after the Dragon Riders were out of the picture because we have mm-hmm. the, the case of Sarah Targaryen, who we'll talk about later. This time I did say Targaryen correctly. And she had children with... Uh, she worked there as a sex worker and then established wealth and moved to Volantis and opened her own pillow house. She had three children along the way with, like, highborn people, bastard children. Maybe they were cool with her having her children because she's a Targaryen. That might have been... A, that might be an exception. But they might have been like, nah, cool, a kid with someone who looks like that, they're happy with that. I don't know. Who knows? These are individuals, so you can't really make assumptions. Individuals we know very little about. Uh, a question left over from last week that we didn't see because it came in just a little b- after we started the episode from Lady Mays Mormont, new patron. Thanks for signing up, Lady Mays. She says, who do you think will be the Lord of Dragonstone at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire? Do you think it may become another Harrenhal-like ruin? There is. I definitely think that's on the table as a possibility, another Harrenhal-like ruin. As far as who will rule it at the end, if it doesn't become a Harrenhal-like ruin, if it, if it is, then maybe no one will rule it. But if it is whole or whole enough or worth rebuilding after being destroyed, someone, with, who, who, someone associated with the new regime, it's pretty hard to predict, I think. I, I don't know that it would necessarily be someone with Valyrian blood, but I do think there's a chance it gets completely destroyed. We shall see. We shall see. Thanks for the question, Lady Maze. Let's move on to war and conflict in lease and amongst the Lyseni. We'll talk first internal war and then external and regional war. From Fire and Blood, there's this one-liner quote, amongst the Lyseni, it is truly said, wars are fought with plots and poisons rather than with armies. There's a good bit of assassination there. You don't get a poison named after your city for nothing. Although, like I said, it was actually developed there. (laughs) So still, there would the reason it was developed there most likely had to do with demand, right? At least in part, certainly. The alchemists of least, like I said, make other poisons as well. And we do know, Sean, referring back again to your question, what do you do with an unruly dragon lord, one who won't pay? Well, when the doom happened, there were dragon lords there and they all got assassinated. So it may have been like this. It may have been the poisons. That's pretty easy, we think. Like, it shouldn't be that hard for them to pull that off. They're not on their dragon. Maybe they have some guards, but those could be dealt with as well. They wouldn't have been expecting it. Like, probably Dragon Lord assassinations probably weren't common, so they probably were, like, not on guard as much as they could have been. Maybe the Doom, maybe they were killed before they heard about the Doom, right? Like some. How, how many were there? Was it, like, two or Yeah, we don't know. 30? Or... We're not sure. But there were dragons there, too. Dragons. That's, that's yeah. the question. It's probably not a lot because there were dragons there, and those were killed as well. Oh, really? Yeah. We don't know how, but... That's a question Dana- Daenerys might want to consider before she goes there. <laughs> like, well, I said, you have killed dragons before. So if they still have whatever mechanism they did for that, watch out. Because Drogon's not exactly the largest dragon of all time. He's pretty young still. And of course, the riots in King's Landing and the dragon pit at the end of the dance might provide some clues there. We'll be seeing that on screen, not this season of House of the Dragon, but probably season three, something like that. But we'll see the dragon pit. In season one, we just won't see like the, the big events there until later. And maybe if the Maesters bring the Maester theory into this, where the, maybe the Maesters helped contribute to the end of dragons with some poisonings and stuff, maybe maybe some dragons were poisoned. I mean, we don't know how if a dragons can be poisoned, but probably they can be. I mean, they're magical, but I don't know if they're just immune to poison. That seems like a bit of a stretch. Enough tears of lease, even a dragon could be killed. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. 
let's have another quote. This one really starts to get into a lot more of the organized crime connections, especially given these names. Toreo Hain was poisoned with his wife, his mistress, his daughters, one being the maid whose wisp of a gown had caused such scandal at the Maiden's Day Ball, siblings and supporters at the feast he held to celebrate his elevation to first magister. Silvario Penderis was stabbed through the eye, leaving the Temple of Trade, whilst his brother, Pereno, was garroted in a pillow house as a slave girl pleasured him with her mouth. The Gonfalonere, Moreo Daguerrean, was slain by his own elite guards. And Mateno Orthis, a fervent worshiper of the goddess Pantera, was mauled and partly devoured by his prized shadow cat when its cage was unaccountably left open one night. I feel like I should have been gesturing a lot. Yeah, I've been gesturing. But this whole... And then Mateno Orthis was a fervent worshiper of Pantera. Yeah, yeah. That's a description of what happened in the aftermath of the Lycene Spring in the city of Lys itself as... The elite struggled for supremacy after the death of Lissandro Regari and the decline, then downfall of his house. So again, this is similar. Like, picture this. We get a better description of what happened when the Rogari house collapsed. It was probably a microcosm of what happened when the doom occurred and the dragon lords fell and the Lycini scrambled to fill that power vacuum. Because this is a, a huge power vacuum. The Regari were probably the most powerful family to rule lease since the doom. Boy, were they big. I mean, they were as wealthy as the Iron Bank, if not wealthier, which is just staggering to consider. And again, mafia comparisons work super well, not just because of the names, but because of this characteristic extreme and demonstrative, but very precise violence. Like they killed all these people, right? Like at the same time in different methods that are nasty, but also very suggestive of, yeah. Ooh, the power level is well beyond that, though, right? This is a well, much, much more powerful than even uh, organized crime or, or specifically Italian mafia at their at, in their heyday, because there these folks are allowed to op- operate more openly. There's less legal authority. There's much greater connection to the government, the, the ruling powers. So yeah, Italo Valerian. It really was. Gonfalonieri is an actual title in medieval and Renaissance Italy. That's not something George made up. So again, the Italian connection, very strong. It was associated with banners like the Gonfalonieri or one of his associates would carry a communal banner. Like it was an organized, like a community organization, like a couple of small towns or one town would have their own Gonfalonieri and they would organize like a militia and local justice. Uh, George does sometimes borrow words using English. Nina has a few other examples. Also Italian, like castrati. He uses the word castrati for the Yunkai singers who were uh, slave singers. And she writes as well, I'm certain George was thinking about the words used in medieval Italy, particularly Florence, to refer to certain civic magistrates, including the Gonfalonieri di Giustusia, which means of justice, who acted as both the city's standard bearer and the head of security and public order for Florence. Though the popes had, up until the late 17th century, their own Gonfalonieri to bear the papal standard. So there's multiple Gonfalonieris around Italy at this time. In Lisa, it's similar. It's an elected military official, but the top military official, leader of the Lycene armies. That's a pretty big deal. It's often a political stepping stone to higher office, in this case, first magister, which is the highest ranking politician in the city. There's no king or queen, anything like that. But these names, right? Rogare. 
Moreo de Garion. Silvario is so similar to just like Silvio. Mateno is like Mateo. Toreo is like Torres or Torres. Yeah, so those are very Italian. Now, here's a little twist. George thought he was Italian when he wrote Fire and Blood and all his life before that. So for 70 years or so, he thought he was Italian. He perhaps has an extra affinity for Italian culture or like a lot of people, he just likes mafia stories like me. I, I'm a sucker for reading about the mafia or other organized crime as well. Maybe he just likes Italian names. Italian names are cool. Maybe it's all of the above. Maybe some combination of the above. Twist, though. I said was, right? He thought he was Italian. In 2019, the year after Fire and Blood came out, he went on the show Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. and took a DNA test. He is not Italian. <laughs> the man he thought his bio was his biological grandfather was not that guy was Italian, but that's not his grandfather. That was his was part of his family. Like was his, still counts. He still raised the family, but he's Ashkenazi Jew instead of Italian. So it's like other the proportions were otherwise about the same. So maybe in the winds of winter we'll get some more uh, Jewish culture stuff. He'll have read up on it. I, I, I do wonder. He might I feel like. Having learned that, he probably is going to read some more about Jewish history. That's the kind of guy he is. I do think so. Yeah. And uh, Ashkenazi are pr pr interesting because they're very spread out. That's, that's, uh, there's, there's that's Ashkenazi. That's what I am. There I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. Yeah. Like, like a pretty high percent, right? Like a substantial yeah. percent. Yeah. yeah that's, I, I'm half Jewish like on my dad's side. So I wasn't raised, but like that's what 50%. My dad is fully very Jewish. So I, on the other side, I would be Irish. Yeah. We'll have to be on the lookout in Fire and Blood 2 and in Winds of Winter. Maybe there'll be some. Some yeah. subtle Jewish references there. Yeah, because I, I totally agree. Like, he learns about this. He's going to want to know. If he had learned about his Irish and Italian ancestry, he was curious about that, then yeah, he would want to learn about this too. I would. I want to just point out that I don't know if he isn't Italian. He doesn't have the Italian genetics he thought he did, but he's whatever connection he thought he had is still there. You're right. Just because the you're genetics right. turn out to be different. I agree you know, with you. A, yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. It, it's it's about, it's it's not necessarily your blood, but where you put your focus and your energy and how you're raised and all that stuff. You're right. It's, it's not all about birth. That's, that's going too far. He's going to channel that when writing about young Griff. <laughs> <laughs> young Griff, like, really thinking he was Valyrian. And then he's like, oh, but I'm not, but I kind of am. <laughs> yeah. Given... It's still my destiny. It's what I'm meant to do. I'm not quitting now. <laughs> given everything discussed, given that Lisa's an island, given their questionable ethics as a city overall, on average... Another form of fan favorite organized crime prominent in Lisa's piracy. Hey, mafia stories are fun, so are pirate stories. So sailing skills are common. They don't have a standing military, so private mercenary forces, sell sales, that kind of thing is going to come up. And of course, as we mentioned at the start, they have a proximity to that eternal haunt of pirates, the Stepstones. And they have a bit of a Stepstones-like situation going on in Lease, given that, where, like I said, where they're positioned in the corner of Essos, right around the, the curve where Essos bends around and goes north, where there's all those cities in the narrow sea. And then if you go east, you get to go past the Jade Gates and all that. So Lease is nicely sit in the middle which makes them wealthy from trade, but also piracy. And anywhere there's lots of trade, there's piracy. Those two things always go together. And who more famous for piracy in the pages of A Song of Ice and Fire proper than Salador San? He is Lyseni. The San family has been active for 300 years. They, it seems to be something that developed in the aftermath of the Doom. Well after the Doom, but still, it wasn't something that probably could have gotten heavily off the ground with the Dragon Lord still around. Sargasso San was active late in the reign of Aegon I. 
He apparently founded their line of pirate lords and kings that are still active today, although it's possible there was someone before him, a son that was around even closer to the century of blood. Sathos San was commissioned by the Lyseni government to clear out the Basilisk Isles. But after successfully doing so, he just took their place. He's like, all the pirates are gone. I'm going to be the pirate now. He became pirate king of the Basilisk Isles for 30 years. There's something very unique about the situation, though, isn't there, Sean? Hereditary pirate kingdoms aren't really... That's not typical, is it? Usually it's like the Dothraki, the free folk, where they, like, they follow some strong leader that emerges and family connections don't have nothing to do with it, but not a lot to do with it. So this maybe implies maybe more of a backing of the official government, something to keep these things in place. Maybe they have a big supply of stashed wealth in the banks that keeps them from ever falling flat, which would, again, imply working with authority because they're protecting their illicit gains. What do you think? Yeah, pirates are usually, A, don't last long, and B, aren't very stable. And so those two things don't lend very well to a legacy. Yeah, yeah, very well said, Uh, yeah. But when they do, usually it's not called piracy, right? It it is, but it's really... Privateering or... Exactly. The the government on some level is allowing it and condoning it to pushing it or whatever. Turning a blind eye. In those scenarios, you might be given some sort of stability or your child might inherit your wealth that you gain through piracy, but the government isn't calling you a pirate. They're calling yeah. you a privateer or a, a captain or a warrior against Spain and good job and they make you a knight or whatever, but really you're just being a pirate. You know? A lot of it I think might be if you here <laughs> can bring up the show Our Flag Means Death for a funny comparison. <laughs> Most pirates go into piracy because they have pretty much no other choice. They are destitute, poor, something like that. That's the rank and file pirates. Someone like but the Sans you get the sense that Piracy and lice, it's like a, the floor is higher for when you get started. It's like a, a justifiable way to make a living rather than something you just do as a last resort. Because I think they, they start off with more money. There's more wealth already from the get-go. There's this lack of desperation. It's, it's actually more lucrative. And given it's more accepted, then it's not denigrated as by society as, as a choice, or at least not by as many people in society, especially when you have a pirate kings that last 300 years. Something's, something's keeping that going. We're, we've we've had some good theories on that, but there might be more. There's probably more to it than that, too. A British person, however destitute they might be, who enacts piracy against a British ship is going to be more ostracized, That's true. punished, whatever. But if you're doing it against some foreign entity and people in the step zones are almost entirely doing it against foreign entities, right? Yeah. You're not hurting your own people and your own culture by being a pirate against the Westerosi or the whoever, Bravosi or whoever else. So your own people might be more okay with you doing it. They might not call it piracy. The rest of the world might call it piracy, yeah. but the Lyseni are like, no, this is, I'm, I'm a sailor. I'm an admiral. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm a my business own man. Right. That's what, that's yeah. what organized crime guys say. Like the, the dons, they're like, I'm a businessman. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're in the business of violence and, <laughs> and theft and yeah, all that stuff. Okay, so regionally, though, when they're fighting the other free cities or involved outside uh, with opponents who are not of their own ethnicity, or in this case, related ethnicity, like Mir and Tyrosh, they fight a lot. It's usually with money. They don't have a lot of soldiers. They don't have, they don't have, they do have a standing army, but it's, it's mostly just they use money to purchase sell swords and sell sales when it comes up. Here's a quote to describe not just that, but what we were just uh, describing with piracy and the different ways it can be discussed semantically. 
Many of their conflicts are so-called trade wars fought entirely at sea, wherein the ships of the combatants are granted licenses to prey upon those of the foes, a practice that Grand Maester Marion once termed piracy with a wax seal. During the trade war, only the crews of the warring ships faced death or piracy. The cities themselves were never threatened, and no battles were fought on land. So that's a really important point. The decision makers are removed from consequences. These wars are fought like, like it's like a game that happens off in some other room to them. They suffer no consequences other than wealth going up and down, of which they have so much they can generally afford to take hits, and obviously they're happy when they get gains. But that's a huge deal, right? They, they, they're without any consequences for the decision makers. There's no incentive to stop this cycle unless the lower classes can rise up and break that hold of authority. You're going to continue to have this situation of legalized piracy. You hire existing pirates and give them permission or you tell your own Navy to act like pirates and the people you hire suffer all the consequences. You only suffer losses of money of which you have massive, massive amounts. And that is reflected earlier in their cultural beliefs where they think trade is a more honorable profession than war. The war is left to the lower classes in their minds, which is pretty reflective of the real world in a lot of ways. Not always. There's definitely a lot of people who get, like people of means who get involved in direct action in combat, but especially in medieval times when the king was expected to lead in battle, things like that. But we're not in those days anymore <laughs> in the real world, but that still happens in, in Westeros, of course, and in Planetos. But there, even that, there's exceptions. There are still people, even in like, say, the Rogari family, which we have an example, Moreto Rogari, who, very much a warrior, and here's his description. That Lord Moreto was a fearsome fighter, none could doubt. Tall and stern, with white blonde hair and blazing blue eyes, he looked the very image of a warrior of old Valyria, men said, and bore a longsword of Valyrian steel he called Truth. Mm. First shout out to his sword name, because I think that's my favorite sword name in canon, other than my, and I have my own favorite, which is kindness kindness yeah but if i had to of course (laughs) if i if i choose a canon one it would be truth killing him with the truth nice i do like that a lot i like truth a lot too as a a sword it's a cool name it's very distinct it's like nothing is more true than this than direct (laughs) fighting (laughs) this idea that some nobles some some leaders are exposed to to war and they're even good at it i mean of course, Joffrey is going to fight from the vanguard, <laughs> right? As Sansa said, of course, you would know, you would never do elsewise. And she's like, he's like, well, I need, to, I'll go where they want me. Like, but you're the king. Why don't you go where you say? <laughs> That's such a great moment. <laughs> I also want to say that I don't know. I'm kind of torn on the torn on the the the, the sword naming thing. Like to me, it's a tool of death and violence. It's awful. I don't like it, and I don't like the idea still of truth. the swords <laughs> getting named. That's truth. <laughs> more virtuous things like truth or kindness. I mean, there's, there, there is a truth to it and there is an irony to it. I get it. But I, I, I'm hesitant to call it my favorite, but what might be my favorite is Widow's Whale. Yeah. I mean, that's what it really yeah. is. You know? yeah, it's, it's, it's more accurate. And it's ironic that Joffrey <laughs> is, uses this. That, yeah, I don't want to give him credit for that wisdom. Sword. <laughs> <laughs> it's even more true. What's truer than Although, truth? I will say, reading the description of Lord Moreto Rogare is definitely gives me like flashbacks to like eugenic, like Nazi Germany type thought. Like this is the true ideal, <laughs> yeah. like blonde hair, blue eyed, like tall and stern, straight backed kind of warrior. I 
like it seems to me like there's a little undertone of that as well. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I can see that, <laughs> they, especially with that whole purity thing. And yeah, yeah. it's hard to escape <laughs> those vibes. Yep. Which is why we c- keep coming back to it looks pretty, but it's evil AF. I mean, yeah. <laughs> not initially Moreto specifically. The I don't same know. is He's true just the some truth. Guy, you know? It looks good sometimes, but it can be evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. if if that sword's wielded by Jon Snow, then heck yeah. But this Moreto Regara guy, he's, uh, I don't know. He's, uh, I don't know. He's, he doesn't have Jon Snow's goodness. So while the Lyseni are very are quite active in the story, the history of the place is not super well detailed. I suppose that's because it enjoyed a long period of stability as a resort island in the Dragonlands. Like the history of a vacation spot without uprisings is yeah. There's probably not a whole lot to say there. Even if if Valyria fought wars with other people, it probably wasn't in much danger. Like when they fought those many wars with Giscar with uh, the Giscari Empire, which spilled over into places like Sathorius. Maybe the Giscari sent a fleet to attack Lease, but that would be so weird. Like, yeah, let's get their vacation spot. Like, eh, what's, I don't know about it. Let's carry off all their wine and tapestries. Like, I don't know if that's really a great military target. They're not building ships there necessarily. They're not building, you know, like minting soldiers, minting soldiers, yeah, training slave soldiers, that kind of stuff. And I also don't think they would have, the Valyria itself would have had to deal with as much piracy because dragons can really handle that in ways that other navies can't. So all these factors have changed now, though, that it's fully independent and has to have a Navy at all times. It, it has to be worried about other people coming for it, even if that's not super likely. If they didn't have a Navy in very high walls, then maybe it would be likely. Someone would be like, oh, look at that. It's wide open for to be taken. I wonder if it had walls when the Dragon Lords were, were ruling there. I wonder if it needed that. And then people like, nah, we're not going to. No, no need for walls when you have dragons. I don't know. Maybe the walls came after. I'm not sure. So it actually began as a trading colony. It started as just a simple trading colony. It was because of that amazing location. But the natural beauty of the place really t- was taken notice of by people in power. And over time, that resort infrastructure was built. That's when the people started, to, the rich people started to come when the resort infrastructure was all there. Once they started to have the pillow houses and the songs and the music and the wine and, and yeah. But then the doom came, and we discussed what happened then. The dragons and dragon lords were killed by the citizens. Sean wondered how many there were. We don't know. Probably not a lot, but there were some. And it seems not unlikely there was quite a lot of resentment built up to the dragon lords, especially perhaps among some of the citizens that maybe weren't treated so well by the elite and their families hadn't been treated well, just going back for centuries, potentially. The new Lyseni leaders, given this place is a resort town, effectively, they didn't have a military for a while, and Volantis took advantage of that. Volantis conquered them during this really early in the century of blood. But as we recall, Volantis overreached. And as they tried to take even more of the free cities, they lost their armies and navies to the point to, to the extent that they weren't able to hold on to what they had gained and enter Aegon the Conqueror. Well, actually, he wasn't the conqueror yet. Enter Aegon Targaryen. He wasn't Aegon the first or king of anything, but he did have Balerion. So he was a force. He torched a Volantine fleet that was trying to attack Lys to try to retake it. So that was, again, another huge loss for the Volantines. They just ran out of ships and soldiers, basically. So that was important. And Lys has been independent since then. They have been unconquered for the past 250-ish years or so. No, it'll be more than that. More like 290, something like that. Something like that. Anyway, as we covered in the Stepstones episode, it was Lys, Mir, and Tyrosh forming the Triarchy, a.k.a. the Kingdom of the Three Daughters, not long before the Dance of the Dragons, or the era that set up the dance. The ensuing Daughters' War was very costly and deadly for Lys, with many 
of the ancient Valyrian families wiped out or impoverished. It was from this chaos that the Rogare family emerged and took over. Their first great coup was Prince Viserys that they had as a hostage after the Battle of the Gullet. But generations past Aegon destroying that fleet. Yeah, yeah, well past, yeah, like uh, more than 100 years later. So they were already a wealthy, powerful family, but they got such a massive ransom for Viserys that included marriage to him. (laughs) Part of the ransom was that, and that was, Viserys wanted that. He had already fallen for Lara, who was a much older woman, but young. She was like 21. So imagine you're a 13-year-old and you have this, wealthy, hot, 21-year-old princess type. Well, she's not actually a princess, but she came on by marrying Tell him. me more. Yeah, so of course, <laughs> Viserys is like, yes, I'm, I, 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 this condition of my release, I support fully. <laughs> I, will, I want to marry her and stay married to her and have her kids. And of course, that's where Aegon the Unworthy and, and Aemon have her kids. <laughs> <laughs> she could have his kids. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> He wants to bear them. He's so yeah. he was so besotted. He was willing to carry the children in his womb. Yeah, no, he, he's he's a Targaryen. He thought children were hatched in eggs. Yeah. <laughs> he was willing to spend some time sitting on the eggs. First himself. one, then the other. Dragons are. So. Yeah, you're right. So they got a massive haul for this ransom. Not only princess level, which brought more after that. Like once you have the queen, eventually that gets you even more. Of course, she never did become queen. She left. She didn't like it. She didn't like Westeros. She didn't, even after she had kids, she just didn't like it. She left. She was, there was a lot of racism towards her too, a lot of prejudice towards the like, but so that didn't help. Which I think is interesting because really, he's really is channeling the real racism against Italian people in the mm-hmm. U.S. and other places, of course. Absolutely. But like now, today, we don't see a lot of that because they're pretty well assimilated in these days. Yeah. But her experience wouldn't have been that abnormal. Yeah, it, it, it does bear mentioning that Italian is one of the few cultures that people still openly get away with some things that you wouldn't get away with with other minorities. Yeah, know? I mean, I was just like talking about gesturing. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if that's offensive. That's just like that's just like channeling the the vibe of an Italian person. I don't. You don't mean that to be. I don't know if I would say that about a different culture, though. You're right. Like, maybe I, I don't know. Uh, okay, maybe yeah, I shouldn't is. speak. I shouldn't speak on that. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not maybe, Italian, maybe that so is, I can't speak on that. Maybe that was rude. I don't know. It's it can be tricky as we're on eggshells to this conversation, yeah. there mm-hmm. are pieces of culture that are true or real or historic or even the people in that culture would even be proud of. So pointing it out or associating it is different than mocking it or being yeah. prejudiced. Yeah, you know, and it's like really it's, confusing because like Speedy Gonzalez, the people, they got rid of Speedy Gonzalez because they thought it was offensive. And then a bunch of Mexican people wrote in like, bring Max Speedy Gonzalez. And they did. Yeah, like, oh, him, yeah. They're yeah. like, oh, I guess we don't quite get it, do we? Yeah, I guess the same kind of thing with them like getting rid of like the Aunt Jemima or like different things. Or the from, Indian like, on the Land of Lakes butter or whatever. Like, yeah, some of those, or, like some of those that really should have been gotten away with. And some of them were like, no, we like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. So that's, yeah, it's one of those things that us white people don't always know what the deal is. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got to be careful. And that's, that's a good, good way to be. Be cautious Swiss with that sort of thing. But yeah, you're right. It is a, true that like the Lyseni, their gods, their language, their influence was very much resented by a lot of Westerosi nobles and commoners. Because they were opening pillow houses, they were asserting their authority, they had businesses, so people were dealing with them on a regular basis. It wasn't just the nobility. But the nobility resented them for for racism and power reasons, and the citizenry, mostly just the racism, I guess, because the 
They weren't I mean, taking power from them. <laughs> yeah, I imagine there was a lot of like moralism involved in it. Yeah, it, with like, all the sex work and all yeah. that. Yeah, you're right. Like, so you, you could get them worked up about it by being like, look, these Lyseni and their, and their dens of sin and all that. Like, I, I, I could see people being pretty biased against them. In that quote you read earlier about the girl who was at the Maiden's Day cattle show, which was the, yeah. the, uh, the all the princesses and girls that were lined up to so that Aegon the, the third could choose a, a bride because he was surly and sour and was like you got to marry someone he's like yeah next, like, i'm emo next. though yeah so <laughs> the girl who they said caused a stir was the lyseni girl who dressed super provocatively which for lisa probably wasn't that provocative but for westeros which is a lot more reserved more like say modern mm. i don't know like the christian influence in america is, is is where george is coming from with a lot of that the seven is obviously very influenced by christianity so yeah maybe more maybe more specifically catholic but because that's his upbringing. With all that, okay, so Drazenko Rogare, brother of Lissandro. Lissandro was the big dog of the Rogaro family. He named himself Magister for Life, which when there was a guy who did that in Volantis, and they killed him. Now, that was Belicio, <laughs> Triarch Belicio. They killed him right away. Rogare was not killed. A, that's a reference. There's a guy right? that did that in Rome, and they killed him too. Yeah, that Caesar guy, That not little Caesar, <laughs> full-sized Caesar. But that's a reference. The Belichick, yeah, the right? Bill Bill Belichick of the Patriots. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was Bell. a volunteer Patriot, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the actual line. Yeah. So Lissandro did have an unhappy ending, but it wasn't the citizens rising up and murdering him because he dared name himself Magister for life. There's a million happy endings in least. Here's <laughs> <Jeez>. an unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> so they got massive banking power. Like I said, at this at one point they were more powerful than the Iron Bank which was probably the only time in the history of the world that someone was more powerful than the Iron Bank since maybe early in their days of their existence, in terms of financial wealth, that is. His brother, Drazenko, married the Princess of Dorne. Remember, Dorne is independent at this point, so that's another huge power grab. So they have the marriage of the Princess of Dorne and marriage to the king, the, the, the heir to Westeros, because at this point, Viserys was next. Eventually, that changed, but yeah. Anyway, he did become king later, but after Lara was gone. But after their pretty brief run, they had this run of maybe three to four years. I forget exactly, but it was pretty short. Drazenko and Lissandro died in quote-unquote accidents on the same day. <laughs> far, far apart from each other. And it's openly stated in Fire and Blood that it was probably the Faceless Men. It was like, usually don't see that. Really, usually it's like the Faceless Men are a little more subtle than that. But everybody's like, who else could do that? It was the was the thought, not only because of their rivalry with the Iron Bank, but because who else could pull that off? Like his Lissandra's barge, pleasure barge, just sunk suddenly, and everyone died. <laughs> and, and Drusenko died of poison, I think it was. Yeah, another poison. That's also a sort of mafia type thing. That you got to like take out the key members of the other family all at once. You can't give chance for the. They'll go into hiding. Yeah, or, if, if, if or, or, yeah. yeah, yeah. If you kill three of them, the fourth one's gonna like hole up and never like they're coming for me. And they they will still have their followers. Yeah. The war will start. Da, da. But if they're all gone all at once, we're like, all right, what's anyone gonna do now? Yeah, it's like yeah. cutting the head off the serpent, but there's several heads. You got to cut the head off. It's like a hydra. <laughs> yeah, Lasaro took over. Lasaro was the eldest son of Lissandro. But he was nowhere near as smart. I think he was Lasaroful. Yeah, he was Lasaroful. Yeah. <laughs> that a, missing the A-N in his name is everything. Lasaro is no Lissandro. He did have, this shows how much wealth they had. This dude just hired a thousand unsullied. We saw how much Danny paid for them. 
for 8000 included a dragon. I mean, <laughs> as part of the price. I mean, damn, expensive. And Lissandro gave Lara Sandok the Shadow, who you brought up, Sean. Sandok the Shadow, a slave like him, seven feet tall, extremely fearsome, cut face, dark skin, wears silk, and is very good with music, actually, as well. Mute. Tywin, again, this is he. he's the one that had the... Valerian steel blade in the hand of a slave. So that's pretty badass. Elite slave warrior. So they had multiple Valerian steel blades, clearly, because Moreto had truth, and then Sandok has his blade as well, his black sword. So after the Regari family collapses, Lys had their revenge on them for their up-jumping themselves and putting themselves up. Some, several more were killed. Some were sent into slavery. So talk about the ultimate fall. Talking about karma. When Lazar was caught and asked what happened to all the gold, that was invested in the Regara Bank, because the Regara Bank, like, defaulted. It just didn't have all the deposits. He laughed. He was on trial. He laughed. Like, what did you do with all the gold? What happened to all the gold? And he started laughing and pointing at different magisters he had bribed. like, I gave it to him and him and him and him. And then they shut him up and scourged him to death, which is, you know, they whipped him to death. So pretty violent. And the ones who he pointed at, nothing happened to them. <laughs> they voted for his execution. And paid off all the people with the money that they got to not go after them. <laughs> exactly. But they couldn't pay off Moreto. Moreto was not caught up in this fall. He escaped Westeros. He escaped the, the fate of his family in Westeros. Went to Bravos. Must have had some money. Maybe, maybe had some at the Iron Bank. Even though the Faceless Men took out his family, apparently, he still was able to go there, hire an army, and attack his fellow Lyseni that turned on his family. It must have gone pretty well. We don't hear about what exactly happens. It was revenge for the revenge the cycle of violence, but because the maester, the maester in Fire and Blood's like, we don't have time for this story. It's a whole nother thing. I'm like, oh, please, you can, we have time? No, we do have time, but we don't know the story. It must have gone pretty well, though, because three years later, he was still around, and he was able to take his brother's bones off of that temple and bury them properly in the family crypt. So he still had a family crypt after all that. He still had the ability to go back and live there. So they must have settled their differences. Nina calls this one of the many cliffhangers in Fire and Blood. Yeah, because this is ongoing at the end of Fire and Blood. So Moreto, we don't know what happened to him. And one of the other brothers, Lotho, went on to help found the Bank of Old Town. He took his cut of the wealth that he got away with and helped start the Bank of Old Town, which is still extant. It's still around. As if the High Towers needed more wealth. <laughs> but, and then... Lara went back to old. Lara went back to lease, mm -hmm. divorcing Viserys in the year after that, in one thirty nine. What, what was the range of this Rogare little dynasty? Like how, how long from their their rise to their fall? Approximately only about four years. They they emerged okay. at the end of the Dance of the Dragons, or during the ending of it, and then held power for a few years, and then. It was 130. So the dance ended in 131. Moreto's attack on Lise was in 135. And he buried his okay. brother in 138. And then Lara left Viserys and returned to Lise in 139, the year after. So that was probably part of why she returned was Moreto settled things and got the family resituated. And there was an agreement they could come back. And she just presumably was like, okay, I'm ready to go back too. Yeah, Lara is worthy of more attention later, but her whole story is too big for here, just like the whole Rogari story is too big for here, because we didn't, we hardly covered any of the stuff that happened on the Westerosi side. All right, moving on a little, let's talk, Nina mentioned this earlier, this comparison, 
lease is a bit like the Republic of Florence. It's one of the best comparisons, which lasted just short of And Now, of course, uh, it was Jessica who said Sicily, which also makes sense because Sicily is an island, whereas Florence is mainland Italy. So it's maybe a combination of the two. Now, the Republic of Florence lasted just short of 420 years. A nice round number. Nice. <laughs> it was also an oligarchy. It was also a major naval slash trading power, banking as well, because they had a coin called the Florin that became one of, if not the biggest international coins at, in that era, which further increased their prestige and their wealth and also speaks to that concept of the Lysine coin with the naked woman being out there and itself being an advertisement for the city and what it's all about. Like the, the Florin, people, everybody knows the Florin comes from Florence. That's the name of the coin. They also had heavy use of mercenaries, Florence. They would not have a big standing army, but they would have they had a lot of money and they would use that to hire mercenaries whenever they would go to war. The Gonfaloniere, again, that term comes up. They ch- the Gonfaloniere chooses the Signoria, which is the ruling council of Florence. But the Florentine guild, every two months, chooses the Gonfaloniere. So there's this like circle of elections that one chooses one, that chooses the other, that chooses the original. So it's a neat kind of like circle of balance of power, I suppose, is the idea. Lorenzo is, there's a Lorenzo, possibly a reference to Lorenzo de' Medici. So rather, Lazaro is probably a reference to Lorenzo de' Medici who was called Lorenzo the Magnificent. Lazaro was called Lazaro the Magnificent. (laughs) Same exact nickname. Lorenzo was the first member of the famous Medici family to be both de facto ruler of the Florentine Republic and head of the Medici Bank. At the same time, as an aside, you got a great A Song of Ice and Fire style name here. Lorenzo the Magnificent took over for Piero the Gaudi. (laughs) (laughs) like piero's like what i'm the gaudi and you're the magnificent come on that is not fair (laughs) lorenzo de medici is is famous for a lot of things he was perhaps the most famous patron of the arts of all time he bankrolled botticelli and michelangelo (laughs) for example like whoa that's a big name those are both big huge names florence also produced not nothing to do with Lorenzo, but Florence, just, just for as a side, just to show how much incredible like art and literature they produced that is still around. Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio also were Florence or Florentines. Nina writes, George may have also wanted to suggest a very slight parallel between Lara and Catherine de' Medici, who was the great granddaughter of Lorenzo, a Medici scion who eventually became queen of France and mother of the last three Valois, Queen, Valois, Valois, Queens, Valois kings of France via her marriage in, to the future King Henry II, although Catherine and Lara aren't really similar in personality. That situation of her being the mother of a bunch of future Targaryens is pretty similar. All right. Let's move into current times, talk about some notable Lysenian that we're familiar with, and consider some outlook for Lys in the rest of the story. Davos was rescued by Lyseni. Of course, those were, those were Salador Sans men but they didn't get caught on the other side of the boom chain, so they were able to save him. Asha lost her virginity to a Lyseni sailor. Just some guy who knew one word, that F word, and she was like, yeah, I'm down. (laughs) He had a fine Dirk. (laughs) He had a fine Dirk, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Sereni of Lise, we mentioned, uh, that's the mother of Shiera Seastar. Nina writes, in the ever-charmless story of Rogar Baratheon, his brothers allegedly brought him seven virgin sex slaves from Lys, along with 40 older Lysenny sex slaves, whom Rogar, his brothers, his cousins, and his friends proceeded to rape two nights before his wedding to Alyssa Valarian. Yeah, Rogar Baratheon is real bad. We'll have more to say about him when we discuss more Fire and Blood. We've already dis- discussed him somewhat in some of our Fire and Blood episodes, but yeah, he's a real, real piece of work, that guy. 
Lazon Omar, spy master for the Golden Company, dripping with jewelry and secrets, is a Liseni. We Shea briefly mentioned Sarah, and we mentioned Sarah at the beginning with Nina's blog post. She is the possible mother of young Griff, Fagon, whom Illyrio, quote, found in a Lysine pillow house. Which brings us to Varus, who, according to Pycelle, was born in, in Lise, which might be why there's this connection between Illyrio, Varus, and Lise. Although Illyrio's just a rich guy. He could have connections to Lise for a number of reasons. But given there's all this Blackfire theorizing and solid evidence of around them, you got to maybe think about some of, this, some of these connections. Varus is perhaps the most intriguing Lyseni character if he's Lyseni, again, that new the, the idea that he came from least comes from Pycelle, who it would be a weird thing for Pycelle to make up. But like, why would he say that? Like, it doesn't it doesn't make Vasvaris look worse to most people? Maybe to Pycelle it does. But even if it didn't make it up, he might just be wrong. Like, how yeah. does Pycelle know that? Because Varys told him. Why are we sure Varys told him the truth? It comes up when he says that to, to Ned. He's like, he's Lyseni, don't you? And a eunuch. He's like, everybody knows he's a eunuch. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was a slave. It, it may have been more about being a slave than being Lyseni. He's like, oh, he was born a slave to talk, but like, oh, he's not worthy of this lordship position that he has. Pacell hates Varus. And turns out for good Maybe reason. More worthy to work up from slave to that position. I agree. Like, Whoa, yeah. in, in some yeah. ways. Just get it because he's born into it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you there. He showed a lot of skill. And also, Pycelle was right, though, because he was right to be wary of Varus, who murdered him. <laughs> so, <laughs> not that Pycelle was right about a whole lot else. Well, there's that. And Varus himself has skills at training slaves. Not dead slaves, necessarily, but the little birds that he employs to sneak around the palace and steal stuff and speak to him in a secret language that only he understands and cut their tongues out. It's pretty evil. Pretty evil stuff there, Varus. So he's definitely got connections to... Those are slaves, right? There's no other real way to put that. So that's a big deal. Recall, we're told he was... He joined a traveling troupe and he was cut in mirror. And that's where he learned his all his skills because it was after being cut that he decided to live again this is all according to him right so it's all a grain of salt stuff here the reason it's i'm a little skeptical that he was actually born in least is because illyrio and Tyrion discuss Varus's background and at least doesn't come up and maybe it's just not relevant because he was 12 and he got established elsewhere just his place of birth isn't necessarily relevant if it doesn't have that much to do with his ongoing story still eh, something to think about he he comes from a place that He's trained a lot of slaves, and he trains slaves himself. Now, the idea that he himself is a Blackfire takes a hit when you consider so many people from uh, from Lease have silver hair and purple eyes. Varus doesn't have purple eyes, but I mean, really, how does that add to the possibility that he's a Targaryen if so many people from Lease have that hair color? Because then he's shaving it to dis disguise it. So anyway, small point there. Also, those ships. We've talked about the ships a few times, the two Lysine pirate ships, the Elephant and the Goodheart. Yes. Now, in Fire and Blood, Gildane tells of Alan Valerian, we mentioned the elephant, right? That he captures an elephant when he defeats the Sea Lord of Bravos, And he's like, don't forget about the elephant when Unwin Peak is chewing him out for wrecking their battle plans. Nina points out that that ship, the elephant, is going through the Stepstones, and we have theorized it's going to be captured by Orane Waters, who is a Valarian by descent. And we have so we have an elephant ship and an elephant mentioned by Alan Valarian, ancestor of Orane Waters. And yeah, 
it's not entirely clear what this link is, but there's slave ship, people being found, possible way for Danny to find out what's happening at Hard Home, which would bring her north, which would get her involved in the others. So Nina doesn't think that's a coincidence. And when she laid it out for me, I was like, I got to agree. That's probably not a coincidence. Valarian bastard, semi-royal fleet in the Stepstones, elephant, good heart, and true heart. The true heart was the name of the ship that Alan Valarian sink. The good heart is the name of the ship, and there's elephants on both. Okay, boom. Like, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> that sounds like watered seeds, right? Mm. Not just planted seeds. Watered seeds. Yeah, watered yeah. seeds. Very good. Yeah. And of course, there's lots of cell swords and cell sails there, which brings us to another point of connection to current plots in A Song of Ice and Fire. Humphrey Hightower, Sir Humphrey Hightower, excuse me, one of the sons of the Lord of Lord Hightower, was sent there to hire cell sails to fight Euron. If the cell sails knew that's who they were fighting against, maybe they'd be better off not taking this deal. <laughs> they're like, no, actually, that dude's probably going to summon Krakens. We don't want to fight him. On the other hand... Maybe they want to switch sides and be like, let's, yeah, sure, we'll take your money, then flip to Euron and be on his side. But part of why he expects this to work, meaning Lord Hightower and son Humphrey, is that Lanes lives there. That's his sister, Jorah's former wife. She's still a concubine of Traegar or Mullen, who is a Lysine merchant prince. Very wealthy, very connected, very much an owner of many ships. So... That's that. What an awkward reuniting that will be. Like, hey, sis, how how's it going? Haven't seen you in a while. Oh, you ran off with Jorah and hooked up with this merchant prince, huh? Great. Can I ask you a favor? <laughs> you, know. you know, is it is there any potential that Jorah reruns into her? Does that I don't know that she would have a reason to leave there, but if Danny goes to Lise and he's back in her good graces, then yeah. Yeah. I, hadn't, I actually didn't think of that. That's a great, that's a good, good call, Sean. Good catch. They could. Endure. I don't know how likely it is or how meaningful it would like what the point of it would be, but I, but there just could be character. Yeah. yeah. Just to maybe, maybe it puts him in a mood and that kicks off some other event. I don't know. You're right though. Yeah. It's, it's a worthy consideration. It maybe puts her, maybe she's not happy there and that gives him some. Yeah. I don't know. In fact, Nina has it in the notes here, too. I just didn't notice it. She says, yeah, I wonder if Danny would run into either of them with Jorah in tow, perhaps. So, yeah, she thought of that, too. So, yeah, you guys are on the same page. That's a great call. Speaking of other powerful people, other queens besides Danny, we got Cersei, whose friend, Lady Merriweather, I mean, friend in quotes in a lot of ways, because she's her friend, and but not really her friend. Uh, Mary, Lady Merriweather is from Mir, but she claims to have powerful friends in Lys, which given those connections and all that makes sense. And Cersei thinks, given how hot and rich she is, she's like, meaning Larry Mer Larry, Lady Merriweather, she's like, I'm not surprised she has friends in those powerful places. <laughs> like, yeah. On the very unpleasant side, Victorian captures a ship bound for lease uh, on his way to Marine. The Willing Maiden, a very unfair, untrue, deeply ironic name. This was a ship who was responsible for capturing people and selling them into sex slavery. Not willing at all, in fact. For his part, too, Victorian ordered the captured girls into being burned. He sacrificed them. That was that scene where he put the seven girls in honor of the seven gods and also in honor of Valor for the burning and also in honor of the drowned god for sinking them at sea. Victorian's very cruel, weird way of honoring multiple gods at once. He thought they were singing 
as it ended, but they were screaming, man, this dude is messed up. Seen expats. Let's talk about some people that aren't Lyseni, but are living there or have lived there for a while, at least in at times. Jorah, of course, we mentioned him. That was his, I think that was his first stop when he ran away from when he was driven into exile. I think that's the first place he went with Liness, or maybe a few other places. Maybe he ended there because that's when she left him. But I'm, I, maybe have went one other place. It's not important. He went there. John Connington supposedly drank himself to death there, but obviously he didn't. So it's not clear whether he was actually there or not. They just said he was there, but they, in fact, I would guess he was not because all the more way to conceal his true location. I gotta say, I think it's it is likely he is there because they, they might want to account for the fact that he really is there. There might be some witness to that. Okay, but they can say he died there and then and then he know, left. He and then okay, yeah. that makes sense. Maybe they had him there for a while, and then when he left, they said he died, and that's why he's not there anymore. Yeah. That would, hmm, yeah, that's a good call. Oberyn Martell was there for a while after his duel with Lord Ironwood, who died after, and they were all like, "Did he poison his blade? Did he kill that guy?" So it wasn't. It was politely not called exile, but everyone kind of recognized it as that. And who knows what he did there. He did not have a child there. He did have a child with a woman in Volantis, noble woman there. So part of his exile, his quote unquote exile was spent in other free cities as well. Here's a real interesting one. Arian Brightflame. Sean, you recall from the Hedge Knight that he was exiled after the events of the Hedge Knight, and that's where he went. He went to Lease. I was like, this is exile? He gets to go there? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? That's a punishment? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so we don't know how long he was gone, but he fought in the third Blackfire Rebellion, which was only eight years after his exile. So he was probably in exile three to five years, something like that. It's possible he had bastards while he was there. I mean, he's in a place with lots of sex workers. So yeah, George has even called the idea that Arian had kids possible. This is partly the origin of the bright fire theories. The bright fire term comes from a black fire spun off with Arian's nickname, Arian bright flame or Arian bright fire, same two nicknames. So bright fire theories, meaning that there are people in the story or that are out there that have his heritage. Varus is, is, is possible as one of those. Not a direct descendant, well, possibly a direct descendant, but not his son, because Varus would have been born about 30 years after Arian's time there. So he couldn't really be his father, but he could be his grandfather. But I think this is pretty remote because of what I just said about Varus and Silverhair. And that doesn't really mean anything in least. <laughs> that could be, there's all sorts of silver-haired people there. And we don't even know that he has silver hair. But it's, a, it's also something I can imagine George have creating as a possibility, but realizing I it's too much of a new thing to go down. You know? Yeah. It is a better theory than virus being a mermaid though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not as fun though. Yeah. And again, just to re reiterate, it's if virus has a connection to lease, which he might, it's, we don't see it. Maybe that's where his child slaves come from, but probably not because Illyrio's probably gets, gets them from Pentos or something. But his anti-magic stance also might not help given there's all these gods and goddesses of, of, least that seem to be related. And speaking of black magic, Elio Garcia, none other than the author of the World of Ice and Fire who we had on earlier this year, he alluded to Aryan Brightflame's black magic dabbling. He says that the fandom has under-theorized about this. He thinks that it's a bigger deal than people are making, and we make a big deal of almost everything. So that really says something. So it makes a lot of sense that his exile there allowed him to dabble further. It was like, what else does he have to do? Sex workers, drinking, and 
being a Targaryen, which means having dragon dreams, maybe, and trying to figure all that out. I don't know. If he dabbled in black magic, this would be a place to do it, given those gods we referred to earlier and all that. He could have learned some things there. And Nina says maybe he learned about breeding and magic and sorcery and things like that. Consider Visenya, who is his, not his direct ancestor, but obviously big part of the Targaryen family before, she was said to dabble in dark sorceries too. And there's this theory that somehow that there's magic involved in the birth of Magor because she was married to Aegon for a long time and she didn't have a kid till till she was 42. So that's a little odd, right? And Magor himself being what he was is like... That kid is not all right. (laughs) Something's wrong with that boy. So the idea that he was conceived partially through sorcery is out there. It's not solid enough for us to bank on or anything like that. But Lyseni, black magic, Aryan breeding, black. Yeah, these things have, there's there's a little something there, maybe. Maybe more than a little, but it's not something we know well. Something to tweak the imagination for you. And you wonder how well he was treated there, given how, how, whether they, they... approve and uh, highlight and seek heritage. Him being an actual Targaryen may have been, they may have treated him really nicely there. Or not, because they killed the Dragon Lords. (laughs) But they didn't kill him. Those days were gone. Corianne Wilde. She was used in a plot by Rogar Baratheon, here he comes again, to separate Jaehaerys and Alysanne. They didn't want Jaehaerys and Alysanne to marry. They didn't want an incestuous marriage. So they tried to stop that. Instead, this didn't happen. According to her, she never actually hooked up with Jaehaerys because he wasn't down for that. But she hooked up with a married knight and eloped with him and went off to Essos. And he died as a sellsword because that's when you're, an, uh, when you're a knight who moves to Essos, you become a sellsword, apparently. That's just the only <laughs> way to make a living, apparently. Which I, I get. Mean, like, yeah. What else are they good at? What are, Fighting yeah, what are your is, other skills? You yeah, raise, a, is a farmer? No. Are you, you know, is there farming to do? No. That's the thing. When you're a, a knight in Westeros, you mostly just train. There aren't that many battles. When you go to Essos, sellsword sell business happening all the time. And these are since... It's the, sort of a cashing in your investment, too. You already own the blade and the armor. and You've had the training. It yeah. makes sense to make use of it, I guess. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so she... Uh, was married to this guy. I guess it makes sense to go kill people for a living. (laughs) If you're a killer, it makes sense to go kill people, yeah. (laughs) Remember, that's what Sandor said. That's what a knight is. It's a killer. (laughs) Oh, the wisdom of the hound. (laughs) Some people just want to get paid for it. Maybe you're being paid to protect people, right? Yeah, You end up killing, you're protecting a town from this army, you kill people in the other army, but on some level, maybe you're trying to do a good thing. Yeah. And on some level, a standing army, a knight's training in Westeros, part of the point of that is to maintain peace. Like the, the most successful army yeah. doesn't go to war, right? right? Like no one wants to mess with them. So war doesn't happen. That's that's a good point. Yeah. So he, so by going overseas and doing that, he's pretty much guaranteeing he's going to get into fights and probably in situations that are not as ethical as defense. Because defense is mm-hmm. pretty ethical overall. Like even if you have to kill people to do it, it's usually, usually okay from a very high level. Obviously there's lots of nuance to that. But if you're going to join a sellsword company, you are, you're, you're going to kill people like that's, it's a lot more likely. If not most certain. of the sellsword companies aren't picking and choosing who yeah. like they're as likely to be hired to go attack a town as to defend a town. Right. So. They are sometimes hired to defend, you're right. But they're hired to defend when danger is imminent, usually, not just as a standing defense force. Although sometimes they are. But that that takes a lot more money. Uh, yeah. Usually you can't afford to pay them that much all the time. So Corianne Wilde found herself without a husband anymore, ended up enslaved at a pillow house, but Rose 
beyond that and eventually became a mistress of her own pillow house and wrote the book A Caution for Young Girls, an infamous book that is featured in Fire and Blood. Uh, Martin wrote that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. George R. <laughs> Martin wrote that. Then there's The Black Swan, a similar-ish story. Johanna Swan was the was captured by pirates and sold to lease, and her family wouldn't pay for her. They wouldn't pay her ransom. She's a 15-year-old noble daughter of, of House Swan. They just, her lord of that time was a, was a real jerk. He was like, nah, I'm not paying for that. Too expensive. What? So she ended up in a pillow house, but but was so smooth about it and so good at manipulating powerful people, I guess, or just a powerful personality. She hooked up with Shirako Lohar, the Lysine Admiral, during the Dance of the Dragons and the Triarchy. We might see him in House of the Dragon. He was a, quote, rival for her affections. So he just didn't, he didn't have her all to himself. He was a rival for her affections. And one of those rivals killed him. And that kicked off the end of the Triarchy and thus the Daughters' War which indirectly led to the rise of the Rogari family. She is still alive at the end of Fire and Blood. So we don't have a full story on her, but it sounds like it would be an interesting one, just like Corianne Wilde. So we'll hope, to, we'll hope for more stories from them later, maybe. Mm. And another somewhat related example, Sarah Targaryen. Quick, oh yeah, Sharon, so go ahead. Swan is still like a house that exists, right? Isn't yeah, there a... they're one of the Marcher Lord houses, one of the defenders of the Dornish marches against the Dornish raids. They're Stormlands house. Right there with Selmy, Dondarrion, and Charon. There is there one. a Swan character? I keep wanting yes. to say Balon, Balon Swan. Swan. He's one of the okay, he's yeah. one of the good Kingsguard. One of the ones who seems like a decent guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He's the one that's currently in Dorne. What about what about Wild? That yeah. Corian Wild. Corian Wild. Yeah. Wild character in the Song of Ice and Fire time period. Yes. In fact, we had a great catch on Corian on the House Wild uh, minutes ago, and we realized that their sigil is a spiral. A whirlpool, like oh, spiral. That's right for Zach Wilde exactly, from exactly uh, the guitarist. Yes, W Y L D E. Too specific to be. Yeah, that's the Zach. So that's House Wild, of, uh, named after Zach Wilde, almost certainly. Yeah, but we also saw Wild in um, the Tales of Duncan Egg. Uh, we had Willem Wilde was one of the people that fought on the side of Arian in the Trial of Seven. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. So they're they're around. Yeah, which makes sense. They're a Crownlands house, so they would be tend to be orientated okay. towards the the Targaryens. So Sarah Targaryen was a daughter of Jaehaerys and Alysanne. She had a very, to put it mildly, wild and rebellious youth. So th there are still Targaryen characters around too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she, yeah, so to put it mildly, she had a wild and rebellious youth. She had been sent to be a novice with the Silent Sisters. That's what her, her parents sent her to be a novice with the Silent Sisters. That's how out of control the situation got. Jaehaerys, not the best dad. Good king, bad dad. But she left. She vanished. She just got away from the sister house, got on a ship, and intentionally got hired at a pleasure garden wearing her Septa's garments. She was basically sold herself as like, hey, you want to, you selling herself to men that wanted to hook up with a a girl from a chapter house. Like, ugh. So she made a small fortune doing this and moved to Volantis in the late 90s to open her own pleasure house. So That sounds funny. In the late 90s. In the late 90s, yeah. The late 90s, yeah. So before the Dance of the Dragons got going. But so by the, by, by the time of the Great Council of 103, which are 101, which we'll see in episode one of House of the Dragon, if, if this, is, this is August 7th, 2002, y'all, in case you're listening to this later. These characters probably won't make it on the TV show, but she had three sons that we said she had with different people that she had had lovers over the years, some of which these were all rich and powerful lovers. So 
Those three all went to make their claim for the Iron Throne at the Great Council of 101, but she stayed home. She's like, nah, I've already got my own kingdom here in Volantis. At that point, she was about 34, 35 years old. So we can hope we'll see her elsewhere, not in House of the Dragon, but in another project. Yeah, there's a good chance for that. Alysanne was always really hoping she would come back. They really just was sad about how it worked out with her and always wanted to make, to rebuild that bridge. Never happened. Alysanne had hired spies to keep a watch on her, though. That would be part of this story. If we ever got a story on her, these spies keeping an eye on her would be part of the, like how the narrative could be told. These, they could be some of the POVs. I think that would be really neat. I might have misheard you or misremembered, but did you say August 7th, 2002? Did I say that? 2022. I, I meant to say, yes, today is August 7th, 2022. If it was 2002, <laughs> what is this strange technology we're using? A pod cast? <laughs> What is that? <laughs> yeah, good catch. So yeah, that would be really interesting to see Sarah's story or Corianne's story or Joanna Swan's story. We probably won't get all three because there's similarities between them, but... But maybe one or two. But maybe one or two, yes. They're all not that far apart timeline-wise. Like Sarah, like Corianne Wilde would have been first, then Sarah, and they'd, they'd be alive at the same time. And then the Black Swan 10 or 20 years later. Of course, Prince, we mentioned already, but it bears repeating, Prince Viserys, who became King Viserys II, was there as a hostage and then married Lara Rogari and all that business. And currently, Edric Storm is there. That's where he's hiding. And his outlook is interesting because on the TV show, Gendry ended up with Storm's End. That makes sense, right? But in A Song of Ice and Fire, Gendry and Edric Storm are two characters in the show. They did the old law of conservation of characters and made Gendry one character. Gendry Edric, or like Gedrick. Gendrick? Isn't that what we called him? Something like that. So Edric Storm could be the one that gets Storm's End in the books, or it could still be Gendry, or I don't know, but this is... By the way... I wonder what he's doing there. Probably having a good time, but... <laughs> I don't know if there's necessarily a reason to question it, but we don't actually know that he's there. We know he was sent there. That's true. He may not right? still be there. Right. You're right. We have... I, I. It might be in the appendix that he's there, but George might have just put that... Okay. Just to keep us unaware that he's moved like unless until he's ready to tell us that he's moved on but yeah i mean and that's another character that could come up when danny slash Tyrion go there if danny slash Tyrion jorah and others go there be like hey i'm i'm edric storm you need it you need an heir to house baratheon pick me i'm on your team squad yeah i'm ready to go back to westeros i'm tired of all these pillow houses <laughs> it's a strange <laughs> thing to hear a 15 year old say 15 year old boy say but maybe this is robert's son he's like i i want to reclaim and do my be like my father my father didn't hang out well, actually he would have your father totally would have just hung out in pleasure houses all day yeah <laughs> but <laughs> when he was young like you he also would have gone out fighting and that's yeah hmm. go get that hammered young edric and see what's up i'd rather we'd rather have you in the story than hanging out in lease i think I'd rather stay in the pillow house than get my hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even lift that hammer. Heck. <laughs> I could lift a fine long dirk, though. <laughs> <laughs> so again, will we see it in the Song of Ice and Fire? I lean towards yes. I do lean towards yes, though it would be brief, maybe one chapter. Again, because Danny has to pass it by and because it's such an evil den of slavery that she's so against. I wonder if she could pass it by if she knows that much about it. And again, future projects, so much room there. Fire and Blood is full of Lysine stuff. <laughs> so will Fire and Blood 2 likely be. Some of the successor shows have plenty of opportunity to bring it into the story, if not focus directly on it. I mean, anyone starting in Westeros or the Narrow Sea is going to pass it. And anyone starting in Atlantis going the other way is going to pass it. So there's all these stories that could involve it, even if it's not the focus. I mean, yeah. And, and, and if we do get that chapter, will it be Danny's POV or Tyrion's? Ooh. It's a tough call. Given Danny's been there before, 
I would guess her. She's the one that has small memories of it. But again, she would hate the place. She would process it differently than when she was if she was nine or ten, seeing she wouldn't understand about all the slavery and all that. Just a nine-year-old's not going to figure all that out. She's too scared and doesn't know what's going on. Her brother's making her paranoid about the hired knives of the usurper. She's got uh, bigger problems at that point than to piece together how society works as a nine-year-old. But given how much she's come to hate slavery, yeah. We'll see. But if it if it's not destroyed or devastated otherwise by Danny or maybe in some other manner that we haven't thought of, it's at least well positioned to survive the long night. It's got that going for it. It's really far south, right? It's it's warm. So even if the long night penetrates really far deep, it might be one of the better places to hang out in the midst. Although I don't know if you want to be around a bunch of nervous Valyrian mafia types. <laughs> Maybe it's not the best place to be. Maybe it just seems like, see, I'm falling for it too. It looks nice. It seems nice, but it's evil. <laughs> Don't fall for it. Even after all that, I'm falling for it. That's how insidious it is. That's how the coercion works. That's how they sell you on it. That's how they sell evil. All right. That is our episode. Thank you for coming, everybody. We really appreciate your listening. We appreciate your comments. Here's a comment from our good friend Dom Tartaglia who says, my favorite sword name is Heartsbane for the same reason Sean likes Widow's Whale. Mm. It's a, that's a, now that's a truthful statement about what a sword is for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a similar thought too from Guilty Undertaker who said Heartsbane and Red Rain. Red Rain, Similar yeah. in that they you know, are evocative of what the what really is. What a sword is actually used for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for killing. Yes, Sandor would agree with those names. I think Sandor would prefer those names to... Of course, Sandor doesn't approve of naming swords. <laughs> well, that's show Sandor. Right? Book Sandor may not care. Okay, our trivia question. The, the question was, who is the first Lysine character we see on screen? Did anyone guess it? Did, did you have anyone? We did get people who guessed Salador Saad and people who guessed Doria. Doria is correct. All Doria right. was in Danny 2 or 3. And we had people questioning Varys' Lyseni heritage as well. Like, well, would it be Varys? Well, is he really Lyseni? They went through the same thing you went through before you outlined. If he's Lyseni, he's the second one we see on screen. Okay. Because he appears in Catelyn 4 with Littlefinger's first appearance as well. What a, what a chapter. Catelyn meets Littlefinger and, well, not meets, but she knew him already. But Littlefinger and Varys' first introduction to readers are in Catelyn 4 in the same chapter. It's like, whoa, here come the big intriguers. <laughs> the ch chapter of intriguers. But yeah, Dorea, who Viserys had already slept with, which we sort of saw on the TV show in that scene where they're talking about the different dragons and Viserys gets mad at her after she's like, have you ever seen a dragon and all that? And he becomes a real jerk. I mean, he was already a real jerk. He was just in a good mood, so he wasn't so bad. But then he turned into a jerk. Dorea, yeah. So Dorea, of course, is not a traitor to Danny in the books like she is in the show. In the show, she teams up with... Who is it she teams up with? The, um, she teams with Zaro, right? Yeah, he and her steal Danny's dragons in the TV show. But in the books, Dorea dies in the red waste. Also she just, notable. She just can't handle the desert, which, I mean, go well, figure. I, I also think it's notable that she doesn't look like Senny in the show. No, they give so her brown you, hair. You know, they just make really her just very hot. normal. Yeah. But yeah, Roxanne she's, she's the just hot. Yeah. Actress, yeah. yeah like they, <laughs> they just made her hot. Yeah, they made her hot. No, she was already hot. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I think she's, I, in a show of very beautiful people, I do think she's a top five beautiful person. Yes. In yep. my opinion. In mm. my opinion. No argument from me. <laughs> but yeah, so in the book, she has blonde and blue-eyed, though, and, and is given to Danny as a gift uh, during her wedding, along with Eerie and Jiki, who are not blonde-haired, <laughs> who are not Lysani. I had a thought going back to the, the mid-roll. I want okay. the, the question Lady Mormont asked about who would have Dragonstone at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm. And 
and I, I don't mean this. Okay. But my thought is that, will there be an end of a song of ice and fire? Mm. And I don't mean that to be like question George finishing the books. I just mean that, that there's so many entities and so many different stages that I don't think that everything's going to have this tidy ending, right? Mm. Every character yeah. and, and, and Can't wrap up every character. isn't going to be summed up, right? Yeah. It, it's going to be an ongoing thing. So there may be some sort of decision made about who's in charge of Dragonstone, but, but I can imagine it not being addressed or being an ongoing thing that isn't, final or whatever. Yeah, so much depends on who actually has a throne at the end. If there is a throne at the end, yeah, it really it becomes difficult to... If there's no one with Targaryen heritage left, then it's not going to be a blood thing. I mean, just give it to young Griff. Like, yeah, you're not really a Targaryen, but yeah, you're the closest thing we got. You can have it, kid. But I don't really expect young Griff to survive the series either. <laughs> really, really like if, against that notion in terms of odds. Like, the and just beyond Dragonstone, like, let's just say... Danny was queen of Westeros at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. Well, wait, you think that's the end of A Song of Ice and Fire? Yeah. You don't think what she does she is has no heirs, part of this Song right? of Ice and Fire? Who's the you prince know? of yeah. Dragonstone? Like, who's she going to nominate? Is That still has to be settled, even if she's the, yeah. Like, even if her heirs are settled, maybe she marries Jon Snow and they have a baby, miraculously. Okay, you think that's the end of a song? Right, yeah, You don't think yeah. what that baby goes on to do is going to be part of yeah, the story you, like we're, that? We're, we would still be wondering for sure, like what happened, yeah. 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 All right, everybody. We mentioned a few of our other episodes. In this one, we talked about the Mother Roin episode, the 10,000 Ships episode, several other World of Ice and Fire episodes like the Stepstones and whichever one we talked about with uh, and seven times never kill man i've lost track of which one that was uh, the nine penny kings episode with Stephen atwell we talked about a little bit those are that's amongst our blackfire collection of episodes next time is the young dragon daron the first the dragon who conquered without dragons it beat out on our patreon amongst our patreon voters that topic was beaten out or beat out the topics red mountains free city of tyrosh and the basilisk isles you can join in on Patreon and get involved in voting and other topics by signing up at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. You can also sign up to get our bonus episodes through your Spotify subscription. You can just add on a few bucks a month to get all our bonus episodes. It should be right there in the link of the episode in the description. You can also go straight to our website and find all links to all these things, as well as links to other places to support us financially or non. And we appreciate any support in any manner it comes. We're very lucky to be doing this. So anything is gravy that y'all want to send us. All right. Thanks to our anyone who came live. Thanks to Nina very much for her notes. Thank you for being a patron or financial supporter if you are one. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin, and Michael for the music and maps that make our show look and sound so much cooler. Thanks to our mods over on Facebook and Discord and elsewhere who help keep the discussions flowing and friendly. And if you want to get some History of Westeros merch, head over to threadless.com slash History of Westeros. Is that the right link? I think so, yeah. I'm like, I don't I, I don't normally... Well, yeah, the link's in the description. You don't need to have... You know, I don't need to say it out loud. You can just go the to historyofwesteros.com and there's a link, shirts, or... A bunch of new designs now. we got dragon yes. eggs. we got shirts. It is historyofwesteros.com. I mean, historyofwesteros.threadless.com. Oh, yeah. Historyofwesteros.threadless.com. There it is. Okay. Or just go to our website. But yeah, we've yeah. got... And this is the really fun part with our new logo that you've probably noticed that's designed by Fox and Brambles with the dragon egg and the dragon. 
We have on the website multiple variants. So you could get shirt or sticker, mug, or I don't know, whatever merch you want with a Drogon's egg, Rhaegal's egg, Viserion's egg, a rainbow egg, purple or blue. So we have some options for you. And so my hope is that eventually like a History of Westeros meetup at like Ice and Firecon next year, perhaps we could see like, Oh, you're in the purple dragon mm-hmm. egg. Or there's, oh, yeah, there's a pink dragon egg, too. And I'm hoping Sean gets the pink one. Does that? I does, made that one for Sean. I specifically did do okay. a pink dragon egg thinking Sean should have that one. Since dragon flame matches the color of the dragon, does a yolk of a dragon egg also be ah. a rainbow yolk or a pink <laughs> yolk? Mm-hmm. That'd be strange. And we like will be giving out sticker versions of these at the watch party we're throwing. Yeah, the watch party, of course, we've mentioned at the end of the last few episodes. If you are going to be in the Atlanta area Labor Day weekend, come to our showing of House of the Dragon episode three. It's yeah, you can, free. Yeah, you can register at bit.ly slash hot D party. How nice is that? Hot D party. Sounds like something the Lyseni would be throwing. Ah. They would have lots of fine long dirks at that party. But no, <laughs> <laughs> this is a watch party. And we're not watching naked. Well, maybe there will be. I don't know what's in episode three. Maybe there will be naked women. I don't know. That's <laughs> not an un... Matt Smith did say there was maybe one too many sex scenes this season. So we'll see. They did say there won't be any sexual violence, but regular sex, consensual sex. Okay, there's going to be some of that. So... We'll see, we'll see, we'll all see, and some of you will be seeing it with us. Oh, our friends at Here Be Dragons. Hey, that's why I said 2002, because they're covering Spider-Man 2002. See, I knew that mm. somehow. I knew, I sensed it. <laughs> they're, Spidey senses. That's right, see, yeah, that's right. Spidey <laughs> senses, dragon senses, they're all, they're all related. They're all part of the pastiche of supernatural senses from cool animals. Radioactive spiders, regular dragons. <laughs> okay, everyone. We'll see you next week. Oh, Sean, you got another thing well, to say? Yeah, I just want to get referencing all this get other material. Yeah. Oh, well, it's too late for that. I just want to get everyone to follow me on Twitter. Oh. Yeah, Dancing Sean. Dancing Sean. Follow him on Twitter. And YouTube and Reddit. And I've been really active with uh, Better Call Saul lately. Are I, you user Dancing Sean on Reddit? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. we can follow you on Reddit there too. Yeah. I, I haven't, like, Better Call Saul's, like, it's getting toward the end of the season and sort of mysterious things are unraveling. I don't want to spoil everything, so I haven't posted that much on Twitter or Facebook. There's a Better Call Saul Facebook group, and on Reddit, there's like a group where I can post without worrying about spoilers. I have written a novel worth of stuff. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. if anyone has any thoughts about that, I would love to engage with you on Better Call Saul. And just to shout that out, additionally, Sean has a lot of things Sean predicted about Better Call Saul have come true. So, you've, you've definitely analyzed it well and not and it's not just predictions They've written it well that too yeah, that yeah, for sure cool. too but it's not just predictions of course you've analyzed like characters and the way they shoot things and filming it just filming yeah. techniques and all that other goodness they put a lot of meaning into it which helps make predictions if you really look at everything but it also helps to be more meaningful hey, so, analyzing yeah. all like a song of ice yeah. and fire you put the extra work in and studying it it's not going to disappoint you're just going to find more cool stuff and that's 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 the mark of a, of a strong creation I think it's part of why I'm so drawn to both Martin's writings and Better Call Saul, because there's so clearly so much effort and depth and meaning beyond that. The surface is entertaining enough, but then there's so much more beyond that when you when you realize it and start rereading it and re-looking at it. It just adds more and more to your appreciation to it, of it. Yeah. Layers. Layer. Levels. Yes. Levels, Jerry. Levels. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next week for King Daron the Young Dragon. 
and excitement builds for future projects. Until then, you know what to do, my friends. Valar, reread us. <laughs> <laughs>